Yeah, I'm. I'm just standing by. I think M- Malcolm Nance may be dropping by, and uh, Malcolm should yeah. be here in a minute or so. Um, I'm trying to get him up there, and if we get very lucky, we'll have Yehuda joining us as well. So, Jeff, if you want to stick around for a minute, because my voice is really not carrying. Please do, Jeff, if you can. I'd. I'd love to. I'd love to have you uh, as my swim buddy because I don't rate a wingman. <laughs> All righty, Chuck. Uh, we discussed it earlier already a little. Uh, General Cavoli, um, Sacker, the, the main theater commander of NATO, speaking to U.S. senators on Friday morning, making it amply clear that Ukraine will need the most advanced of the weapons in order to succeed and make a substantial difference in yeah, in this war, and that includes F-16s, it includes Takans, and it includes significantly more Bradleys, or substantially more Bradleys. What say you, Chuck? Are they finally getting there? Well, I, I just at the end of uh, Jeff being on, he, he really said something that, uh, look, I'm behind 100%. And, uh, and that is... Uh, you know, you could have an offensive plan uh, and, a, and an offensive timetable, but sometimes it is better. And I think that uh, believing uh, that Bradley's are getting here, that uh, that your own campaign fleet, Free the Leopards, has finally worked, that this better equipment uh, is is going to show up. I uh, I would tend to agree with the Ukrainian command structure that that said, okay, we had some winter offensive plans. Why don't we put them on hold? Let's integrate this new equipment, vital stuff. Let's integrate this into our new maneuver warfare plans. And there is also a time uh, to let your enemy continue to make the mistakes he's making. Napoleon said, never in, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. Uh, what sort of mistakes are the Russians making? Well, Vuladar was not supposed to turn into a, uh, uh, you know, a yard sale by the Russian army. They really thought that that was a big city move. They were going to pull on the Ukrainians, and they were going to advance uh, to the to the northeast as a result of that. We all saw what happened. I think that one of the operational pauses that's going on right now is that the Russians had had to recalibrate their own plans. Uh, there's some more information that's come in uh, just today about uh, what a Russian timetable might be, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, I think. But uh, if I get this correctly, there is substantial political momentum firming up. And that is a significant difference because the it's now really seriously that uh, the both the momentum in the Senate Armed Forces Committee has been so strong and so solid, and the support has been there for quite some time. But now it's more than just local; it is carrying over into the Munich Security Conference, uh, shows and talk shows. And yesterday, then comes this, I mean, epoch-making and um, astonishing determination by the State Department. We didn't even dare to hope anymore after having pushed for it and advocated for it since last year. But the determination that uh, Russian officials and Russian armed forces 
have committed war crimes. And the statement is so all-encompassing and so clearly directed also at the Kremlin and Moscow. Um, this is extremely serious. This is the first time since essentially the Nuremberg trials that such a determination in such unilateral fashion has been voiced by the United States of America. They're definitely in it to win it, are they not? Yeah, absolutely. And that uh, that statement regarding uh, war criminal status, you know, it, it came from the absolute highest levels of the United States government. It came from the Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken. Uh, so uh, there is no room for inference there. There is no uh, there is no reading between the lines. This was a this was a a straight up statement. Uh, that the United States regards those military officers, Russian military officers, participating in this war of aggression in Ukraine, that they are guilty of war crimes. Um, you know, what does that mean? Are they going to be rendered uh, to the Hague to stand trial? Uh, no, nothing, of course, is off the table. And you can ask Charles Taylor, the former dictator of Liberia, uh, how his war crime uh, the war criminal status evolved, but it certainly means that uh, this this high ring of, of Russian oligarchs and those in service of Mr. Putin, uh, at the very least, their days of travel uh, in the West are over. Uh, and and again, this this is a rightly deserved uh, status. And and frankly, the paperwork. Uh, you know, so more of this. No worries. Um, Chuck, I lost half a sentence of yours. It seemed that your connection was breaking up. Can you repeat that? Yeah, I, I've, I've got the weirdest uh, connection here uh, in the world this afternoon. Uh, just saying that, you know, the, that this, this uh, pronouncement by the United States came from Secretary uh, of, of State Blinken. You can't get uh, higher up the food chain than that. Uh, and that the other thing that I expected uh, is that we may see uh, soon, and the, the wheels turn slowly, but I think we're going to see specifically named Russian individuals uh, indicted as, as war criminals. I think we're going to see the International Court of Justice in The Hague. I think that indictments are going to be issued. And uh, this particular creature's name escapes me. But the uh, commander of the motor rifle troops who uh, organized the, the rapine murder uh, rapes uh, in Bucha, we know who this individual is. And uh, I expect him to be uh, to be literally indicted by the by the courts. Uh, so we will see. What does this mean? Well, it, it certainly means that some of Putin's closest adherents are not going to be vacationing in the Costa del Sol anymore. Uh, I would expect also that some of their Western uh, holdings will also be be jeopardized as well. I think the key aspect there is that the secondary sanctions will come to bear on them and will uh, lead to uh, many, many Western companies 
are feeling the heat that they can't really engage in any shape or form, aid and abet and support uh, Russian assets being transferred or even traded with. Jeff, you had your hand up. Yeah. Hey, sorry about that, Axel. I, I had a full on frontal attack by a two year old and uh, <laughs> I was getting destroyed. So I had to, had to turn it over for a second. But hold on, hold on, buddy. I'll be there in a second. Okay. I'll be there in a second. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's tenacious. He's not giving up. Um, but, <laughs> um, hey, Chuck, I did want to ask you something. I, I, I don't know if you had a chance to listen in when we had uh, Congressman Bacon on. Um, but given, given your experience and given your past, especially as a soft guy, right. Um, you know, Don Bacon and I both agree that if, if a nation is at war and Russia's at war, right. I mean, that this is that are at war, that, that no safe Harbor should exist, that no sanctuary should exist, that, that if, if the people in Kiev, this was his words, right. If the people in Kiev, uh, have to go, uh, through the night in the cold, cause they don't have electricity and, you know, they have no lights then the people in Moscow uh, should be subject to the same punishment uh, if, obviously, Kiev could reach, reach that far. Uh, I was wondering if you could touch on that, because I, I think there's a lot of there's political challenges there, right, that, that we have some, some Western leaders. And I, I'm not just saying Joe Biden. I think there's some Western leaders that just really have uh, apprehensions about striking deep strikes into Russia. And I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, Jeff, I, I, I definitely get that. And uh... Uh, I, you know, I, I wonder, uh, I, I would look at the political ramifications of, of missions like that. And for, for example, um, the, the, the Ukrainians did hit uh, basic equivalent of Offutt Air Force Base which, uh, for this naval of, uh, I shouldn't use that, belly button, center of gravity of uh, the United States Air Force's uh, Strategic uh, Air Command. Uh, that was a completely legitimate target. This is the Engels, Engels II Air Base. Uh, again, a- an attack carried out by some mysterious means because uh, nobody knows what exact Ukrainian weapon it was that uh, attacked the airspace. I think that's a 100% legitimate uh, military target. And as Jeff said, look, Russia is in a war, no matter what it calls it. Uh, but I, I have a, I have a real problem. Uh, for example, were, were, were the Ukrainians to strike at Moscow? We, we give the opportunity for Putin, uh, as crazy as this sounds, we give him the opportunity to play the victim. You know, we give him the opportunity to wave the bloody shirt around uh, parade, uh, even manufactured manufactured Russian civilian casualties, and uh, you give him something to latch on to for his people. Uh, you know, it'll it won't rise to this level, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 24 hours turned uh, one of the worst American defeats ever, and he turned it into the beginning uh, of the end of the of the Japanese Empire. Uh, of course, Putin's cause is not righteous. Uh, Putin is no Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, but I, you know, I, I just wonder about the political ramifications uh, of, you know, of, of a strike that Putin could make political hay out of. So wouldn't it be absolutely perfect, therefore, in the next few days for Ukraine 
to make one symbolic strike yet again. Well, I I have been advising everybody, you just wait for the Russian telegram channels to show some fat, red-faced Russian uh, local official cutting the ribbon on the new, reopened, better and improved Kerch Bridge. And then I would advise you to uh, step away from the bridge as quickly as possible, uh, because I think that the Ukrainians will strike it again. And that will be another... Uh, legitimate military target addressed by whatever weapons it are that the that the that the Ukrainians have <coughs> attack them uh and uh you know a, again it's that that would be much harder for Putin to sort of try to try to make political hay on uh it it was Putin's idea to build that bridge in the Kerch Straits unlawfully he went ahead and did it uh, he unlawfully annexed uh, Crimea, and uh, the pesky Ukrainians keep blowing up his bridge. There's sort of nothing for him, uh, you know. There, there's nothing. There's no way he could present this to the Russian people as a as a coward, cowardly and dastardly strike by the Ukrainians. Which I, I will point out for for anybody who bought into the. Uh, the Ukrainians truck bombed this bridge uh, again. It, it's much easier for Putin to sell uh, the fact that uh, the Ukrainians coerced some individual to drive this truck over the bridge and blow it up instead of saying to the Russian people, our best anti-aircraft systems, S-300s, S-400s, they were surrounding that bridge. But whatever it was the Ukrainians shot at it got through all of our shot or this explosion occurred coincidentally when a fuel train was passing right over the middle of the bridge. So the less Putin to work on and the less he has to discuss, if he has anything more to, to discuss his defeat, uh, his bumbling efforts and, and bridges that he just repaired getting blown up, the less we give him, the better. Because he's fighting, you know, Putin's weapon is his mouth, and it's it, Putin operates in the information space. So let's constrain his battlefield, right? Let, let's provide him irrefutable facts and let him try to spin them, and not one of the you killed a grandmother's. So I, I don't know, just my opinion. Uh, legitimate targets are to be had throughout throughout this this whole battle space. Sorry, Chuck, my, as my voice is really crackling and was oh, waiting so... for, for both. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. I, I lost two registers or dropped two registers since yesterday, having spoken yesterday for quite some time. Hey, um, can we just briefly update as to what people, because people expect to hear this anyway, what happened in Svartova and Kremina uh, during the last two days? Everybody was focused on the security conference, but at the same time, we hear that the Russians are taking extreme amount of losses. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's, let's go to uh, Kremena. And I have not uh, updated uh, the map uh, within the last uh, 16 hours. 
there uh, within uh, yeah, 18, 18 February, uh, there very much operational pause on, on the part uh, of the Russian forces. Uh, I can only attribute this to uh, the Russians regrouping, rebriefing, and, and rearming. Uh, we just discussed on the on uh, on bullet points the other night, and I was on with Alan. I think uh, last night as well. Uh, as far as I can determine, and, and this is this is informed speculation, folks. I would imagine that the Russian uh, numerical superiority in incremental battle space approaches five to one. Five Russian soldiers for every Ukrainian soldier. Uh, those are the kind of odds, and there are the kinds of units, uh, Russian units around Kremena, which include uh, uh, regiments of uh, VDV, uh, uh, airborne forces, uh, guards, motor rifle brigades, crack Russian units, uh, at least three regiments of air assault. Uh, Russian troops. These are the sorts of men, these are the sorts of units that should, should be able to stage a breakthrough in Kremena. Uh, that they haven't, um, uh, you know, there, there's, we can go into the reasons why. Uh, but I, I, I do expect the Russians, uh, they have launched uh, numerous, a score of, of failed probes aimed west of Kremena, and one of their intermediate goals is the Zerbets Reservoir, which is a long, slender lake that is about, uh, I don't know, eight, nine kilometers. I said, of attacks trying to get to that reservoir uh, keep failing. And one of the things that the Ukrainians have done, and this is a tactic that leads me to believe that the Ukrainians are, in fact, outnumbered here. Notice I didn't say outfought. I said outnumbered. Uh, the Ukrainians will give them, the Russians, they'll give them four, five, six kilometers to advance across. And then they will engage the leading elements. And in particular, they will destroy the follow-up. Uh, the reinforcements, the logistical supplies. So the Russians may take some ground, but they cannot hold it, and they get pushed back. Uh, and this has been going on in the Kremena battle space, uh, I would say, almost four months. Certainly, in the last six to six to eight weeks, this has been the this has been the standard operating procedure up there. But but again. Uh, there are, there are a lot of Russian troops in Kremena. Uh, as far as I can tell uh, from, the, from the orders of battle and the information that I'm receiving, there's probably more Russian troops, more capable Russian units around Kremena than there are anywhere else on the battle space. The same thing, if I'm not quite mistaken, has continuously uh, occurred also all the way down, whether it is uh, the area of Siversk, where seemingly the Russians have been stalled, um, Solidar, where they've 
taken the area because the Ukrainians withdrew, but they haven't made any significant progress since. They've been pushed back around Bakhmut now twice. Then the Ukrainians have given ground again, which reminds us of the same seesaw movement which we had in Severodonetsk last year and uh, Lysychansk, but also further down south towards Volodar. Whenever the Russians are coming out of the woodwork, whenever they are throwing in not just their human waves, but also, as we've heard in recent days, they've used their tanks, they've used their BMPs, they are actually carrying out offensive action. And what happens in Volodar, Chuck? Well, the Russians got a lesson in uh, mine warfare. Uh, we, we also, we got to see, there was there was one video clip. It was probably, I don't know, it was 120 seconds long. And in that one video clip, I saw every mistake that could possibly be made in an infantry assault. And then a couple of mistakes that I didn't even think of. So you've got a column of Russian vehicles approaching the battle line. Uh, they're going down. Uh, they're they're following in each other's tracks. That is a kind of the smart thing to do in a minefield. The lead vehicle hits a mine, so the vehicle behind it puts on its turn signal and passes to the right, where, in a total shock, it strikes a mine. And then the second vehicle back, well, it turns on its left blinker and passes. And who could imagine this? it strikes a mine. Now there are four, five, six other armored vehicles behind these, these lead, uh, lead Einstein, Newton, and Da Vinci who were driving these first vehicles. Instead of cramming it in reverse and getting out of the battle, getting out of this position, driving through down your own tracks that you've just made, uh, these guys just sit there. And it doesn't take 20 more seconds before Ukrainian artillery comes in on them and destroys the rest of these vehicles. Uh, what that tells me is your individual operators are, are not trained. I, I don't know how you brief a battle and everyone doesn't come out of the briefing knowing exactly what they're going to do with when they come into contact with the enemy. You know, uh, uh, contingencies in the event of contact. What do you do? There should have been a section of that briefing here. We're going to do if we hit. Going to do to get across this. Here's what we're going to provide in terms of fire support and counter battery fire. Just, just incredible, just incredible, and within. Within two days, but actually within, from what I can tell, within the space of two periods of conflict that were about four and a half or five hours long over the case, course of 48 hours, the Russians lost 40 main battle tanks and 130 infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, those are the kind of odds in a World War II battle. Uh, that puts it up there with one of the greatest Russian military defeats uh, since the middle of World War II, and probably second only to the absolute rout uh, that occurred uh, when the Ukrainian offensive roared out of Kharkiv a couple of months ago. And, and I'd suggest this, that Vuladar was, was 
picked as a location to kick off the Russian offensive. Uh, it was picked for a particular reason, because the Russians felt that the Ukrainians there were not prepared to receive an offensive. I'd also suggest that the units that were assembled there at Vuladar to fight the Ukrainians, and, and we know that they were uh, Russian Marines, this was, this was a Russian naval infantry that are considered to be highly trained, highly reliable, resolute. Uh, they were given the job to open the offensive in Vuladar, and uh, what they wound up doing is having a garage sale. And, uh, and again, the casualties, of course, are telling. Among the many hundreds of Russian dead include the colonel who was commanding uh, one of their battalions. So this was a wreck. Uh, this was a wreck. You know, I was a junior officer. We are, Ted, we are told to lead from the front, uh, and we do. But if you're a colonel, if you are a field-grade officer, your job is not to get shot at. Your job is to, is to plan and brief this operation and prepare your troops to carry it out, uh, not to roar up front and, uh, and catch an NLAW missile in your vision slit. Sorry, Chuck. I, I really have difficulty speaking at the moment. Can you carry on for a moment? Yeah, I I can, Axel. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's let's move up. Uh, let's move up from from Vuladar. Chuck, uh, can I have a question? Yes. Yes, please. Sorry. Uh, so, um, what I have seen around Vuladar. So, um, I kind of need your. Um, expertise on that. Um, what I have seen around Vladar are a lot of tanks. Um, and, um, well, blowing up uh, in the field, but that's another story. Um, that, that's kind of... <laughs> that's another part of the story. But um, what I don't understand, um, and maybe you can help me, why why did the um, so to my understanding they they massed like three three um i will remember the name they all start with a b this this is what i i hate names i i love i love numbers and i hate names um so uh, brigades so uh, to my understanding probably I'm right uh, uh, I'm wrong but uh, you, you can set me right they massed three three brigade, brigades um, around Vuledar and from what I've seen in um, in the videos um, there are a lot of tanks Russian tanks um, And my question is, why are they not using them in other regions? So why why are they focusing on attacking Vuledar with with tanks and not other regions, not other towns? Like um, th this, it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm sorry if if it's a it's if it's a dumb idea, but uh, uh, or question, but um, it it really is 
something that I didn't understand. So I'm sorry. No, it's a, it, it is a good question. So the, the Russian units involved here were from the 155th uh, Special Purpose Brigade. Again, that's a, that's a Russian naval infantry outfit. And the 40th uh, Naval Infantry Brigade. Again, this is a brigade uh, of Marines. Uh, they are actually normally based uh, in Kamchatka, which is, as everybody probably knows, it's uh, in, in the Russian Far East. Uh, these, these are Marines from the Pacific Fleet. Uh, it's a good question to ask, why, why did we see so many tanks at, at Vuladar? Well, they, they were pulled together. Uh, this was, you know, the uh, Russian uh, other plan to do. Well, they, you know, they plan to break through at at Vuladar, and uh, there is a, a highway going up to the uh, to the northeast. So the plan uh, for the Russians was to was to punch through to take Vuladar, push push the Ukrainians back, and uh, and begin uh, an offensive uh, that was pointed back towards their own lines. Uh, around Vuladar, the line of contact goes, uh, as everyone knows, in the, in the east, the con line of contact goes uh, from Kupiansk south to Donetsk, around there. And then it turns east and west, right? Right about at Vuladar is where it does it. So what the Russians planned to do is cut off that corner, right? They they planned to, and they put together a force of uh, two brigades of Marines and armor and infantry fighting vehicles. And they expected, and rightly so, uh, they expected that the forces that they, they'd assembled at Vuladar were sufficient to knock the Ukrainians back, uh, push them away, take Vuladar, and uh, then continue uh, with offensive action. They thought that 50 or so of main battle tanks leading the assault and followed by infantry in uh, armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles, uh, classic Soviet doctrine, classic Russian doctrine, uh, they thought they were going to succeed. Uh, that they didn't uh, is, is, is pretty surprising. Uh, that the effect, that the attack took place in daylight. Sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, so... If if I understand correctly, you mean they want to push from um, from so Vuladar is at at the turning point point right. Uh, so if I understand correctly, they want to push up in order to basically uh, like make a corridor up uh, towards uh, Avdivka and and uh, uh, Bakhmut. They they hope to. Um, it, it's a long way. Did I understand correctly? Yes. What, what they weren't they weren't planning to get up uh, to Bakhmut, but uh, had they reached Vuladar, they would have been able to have access to the TO five twenty four highway, which goes first to Katerin Katerinvka, and then up 
uh, towards Donetsk. So they had what probably was the appropriate amount of force, uh, I mean, for a Russian victory. Uh, they had a, a specific military goal, which actually was, was modest. Uh, but the fact that they, that they, they pulled, they pulled this off, uh, it, 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 it was an, an, an incredible defeat. They, they weren't just sort of, uh, they weren't fought to a standstill by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians pretty much utterly destroyed, uh, two brigades of, uh, Russian Marines. For all intents and purposes, they destroyed uh, at least 75% of their tanks, and they probably destroyed about 80% of their armored vehicles. So, uh, it's too, the, uh, the one yeah. I, I look, I, ha I have to say that, and I, I, I would have to get back to the, to the order, to the orders of battle here, but uh, the, the, these two units. Uh, they are effectively hors de combat now. They are, they've lost all their equipment. They've, they've lost, uh, they've lost most of their men. I mean, they're not functioning anymore as military units. They were, they were that badly defeated. And those units are the 155th Special Brigade and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I can't remember the number right now of the other Marine Brigade, but, you know, they weren't just defeated; they were they were decimated. That's okay. That's a lot. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, um, no worries, Zandan. Let's let's say hi to Malcolm, who's finally managed to uh, join us. I think we had a couple of technical difficulties as well. Malcolm, good evening. I apologize for my voice right out of front. I can't talk much. Welcome. Hello. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> You're no good to see you, bud. Always to the game. It's a good entrance, Malcolm, as always. Our <laughs> well, So, what are we discussing? Anybody? Well, well, where do we start? <laughs> Momentous days, uh, apart from all the all the frontline issues, but Friday morning. Cavoli briefing to bipartisan senators, Kelly, uh, McConnell, everybody, um, F-16s, Attacams, everything on the topic, unison and much unity at the uh, Munich Security Conference. Right. Then yesterday, statement by uh, this by uh, Blinken, uh, the State Department determination of something which is as momentous and epochal that we haven't had it since the Nuremberg trials. Right. Uh, then today, further on, follow-up at the security conference, more unity, more weapons, more support. And um, I know he's not on your aisle, but that's fine um, because he's a friend of Amy and Amy's a friend of yours. Uh, Lindsey Graham goes all out, guns blazing on US television to support exactly the same message uh, Mitch McConnell and Mark Kelly have put out on Friday. There seems right. to be um, there seems to be a very very big momentum at the moment, and uh, it it seems to be happening, doesn't it? Well, I I agree 
Absolutely 100 percent. And I'm going to tell you the reason why many of you have divined it. We're coming up in a few days on the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. And the American public being what it is, they're a little fickle. Uh, they pay attention to the bombs, guns and helicopter rides, as we call it, the videos of the fighting uh, in the first couple of months of the war. And then it sort of waned off as, as other issues popped up. And what's happening now is you're going to see a wave of news media bringing back, you know, to remind the American public of those first days of the war, of people being unjustly invaded, children being killed. There will be lots of footage on air. And I will be actually on MSNBC on the 23rd or the 24th. Uh, they haven't figured out that date to do a, a special uh, on Ukraine to discuss why I, I quit news media and, and went to fight. Uh, so it, it will. I think that as this crescendo pushes towards the first anniversary of the war, people really, really, really are, are starting to realize and are going to find out that their investment was worthwhile. Uh, as you guys all recall, war wasn't supposed to go longer than two weeks. Kiev was supposed to be taken in 72 hours. And I'm proud of the fact that I've that I that I made one a lot of predictions in the pre-war, all of which came true, with one exception. I always I always cop to this one. Russia did not carry out a massive debilitating cyber warfare attack, which showed us that they actually suck at anything other than a few denial of service attacks and doing, you know, Twitter war influencers. So uh, but everything else turned out to be true. Uh, I, I predicted Kiev would never fall. I predicted that Ukraine would never be defeated. I got into an on-air battle with an expert when I said I had been out with the Ukrainian army in Donbass and down in Donetsk and Avdivka with General Sersky and General Pavlyuk, the top two commanders of the war right now, and that these are generals that cannot be beat and that the media had ignored the one factor that was going to change all this the Ukrainian army. And voila, the Ukrainian army stood up. It exists. It kicked ass. It took names. And now we're coming to the to the anniversary of that. And people are ready to do another massive wave of support. Now that momentum seems to be also turning into uh, not just the capability development, which was um, the priority message um, at Rammstein 9 um, in the week, which something which after this Munich security conference with all the big wigs there, we nearly seem to have forgotten. But there in the press conference, uh, Lloyd Austin stressed that it's not about platforms predominantly, but about capabilities to be developed and delivered to the Ukrainians. And what happens the next day? Everybody's talking F-16s. Everybody's talking more Bradleys. Everybody's talking attackers. So all the, all the pieces of kit for which the Ukrainians actually do have capabilities or have them under development. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, he, he's right as well. You know, one thing that we can say about Secretary Austin uh, having, a, you know, a multi-star general, former general in charge, is that he knows what it takes to be at the pointy end, uh, you know, uh, of the kill chain and to put down what you need. If there's any one thing, by the way, I'm, I'm gonna brag for the next week uh, when I did my big rolling out ceremony on 
April 18th, uh, and I knew that the White House was watching. I was the first person in news media that demanded that uh, Ukraine get the HEMARS and the, you know, and the M420 MLRS. And that debate didn't, they, that you know, nothing was moved for about eight weeks. There was huge discussions and fights in the White House that that would be escalatory. Uh, but it's a capability that, you know, I knew existed immediately. And at the Pentagon, they were ready to propose that themselves. But, you know, all things are political, as we're finding out in Munich, as we constantly find out in Ramstein. Um, you know, these decisions that are being made are now about the next phase of the Ukraine war, which is Ukraine on the offense to defeat the Russian army completely, utterly. Uh, and for that, you know, you don't need, you know, a griping. You don't need an F-16 just so that you can say, I need more fighter jets. What you need is, as we've done with the uh, MiG-29, we gave it a capability. We put the harm missile on it, and we are systematically blinding Russia all across its frontier to the point where only their furthest back air defense missile systems can come online. Uh, there was just a good video of a tour surface-to-air missile system the other day uh, being hit by clearly by a uh, Excalibur round. One shot, complete air defense coverage eliminated in that sector. So the Pentagon doesn't understands that hard iron is needed to go out there. They understand that you know multitudes of bullets need to go downstream. That uh, the consumables that we have in the battle space need to be replenished, which is the real capability of the Ukrainian army. My my battalion, my platoon. Now we have a we now have a a, a combat weapons uh, platoon assigned to our special operations unit, and it. All that is Mark 19 grenade launchers. And now the Russians are complaining. I don't know if anybody saw that video that was released by Gurr the other day where the guy goes, it's like an AGS-17 grenade launcher. It shoots at that level, but all the rounds explode over our head or on us like mortars, and we don't know what to do about it. Well, that's capability. But those things just suddenly showed up in the last month in large numbers. So someone gave this thought, right? being able to get this lobbing capability to go out one to two kilometers on the battle space. And it's not the big, sexy systems that we want, like ATACMs. I want ATACMs to come there because that would, especially the Block 1 model missile, because it would completely neutralize Russian artillery battles if they, batteries if they gave them the ones with the 500 or 900 round sub, uh, submunitions. But, you know, everyone's thinking the 500-pound, you know, unitary warhead. Well. I personally think now that the, you know, the large, di small diameter glide bomb system on the, um, on the MLRS or on the HEMARS rocket may actually be even better than uh, putting the ATACMS missile because it can't be intercepted. It can be programmed to go up, down, glide, left, right, you know, go through fields of air defense. That's the capability that, you know, the, the geniuses at the Pentagon are looking at now. And, you know, they understand that, that one rocket is, you know, is, is in, hitting at one meter is better than 200 MLRSs missing at, you know, two, three kilometer distances.
So, Mark, what do you expect to happen in the coming days? Will everything calm down and we won't hear much of anything and uh, things will be delivered quietly? Or will there be momentous adjustments in terms of communications policy? Well, I think that communication is having a problem. It's our news media and our population spans. And I think as we come to this first anniversary, people are really going to understand amazing, which was give Ukraine the capacity to survive. Remember, this was a hell for a, you know, for a war that would, you know, push us way past the Dnipro River and force us to defend Kiev and then go into guerrilla war. I mean, one of the reasons I was bought in was, you know, um, as one of the irregular warfare guys, uh, you, you know, with, with GUR. And so, but now it's a, it's a stand-up army. The army that fought on day one is still intact. It's the same army. No units have been eliminated. Multiple, multiple more units have been put on. So as our population start to see it, I think you're going to see more press announcements. I think now is a good time for those Bradleys to arrive on trucks. Um, somebody yesterday had a photograph of an F-16 with no markings on it that had Dutch um, Dutch warning plates along the rear. Of course, the wings and everything were off. I don't know if it was a dummy. It looked like a, good, a, a real tandem uh, F-16 fighting Falcon. But I think that people are going to understand their investment is paying off. And you're going to be hearing a lot more announcements of weapons systems. Malcolm, earlier, before Ramstein 9, there were, there were a couple of Ramsteins, one in particular, where Secretary Austin and Sec Secretary Blinken, or actually it was General Miley, came out, really twisted expressions on their face. Uh, the net result was Germany was not going to give in to the leopards. And within 48 hours, we heard, actually, that Germany was. Uh, arguably, Ramstein 9 was a little light on the good news. But do you think there's an information policy that is slowly going to roll out uh, everything that you've named, uh, attackums, et cetera, and, and more? You know, is that is that an informational strategy here? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Look, um, I know people on the OSD staff. Um, I've never met General Austin, but I, I know people that know him personally. I think, and here's the one thing that I've learned easily about him. This is a bulldog at the end of a leash waiting to be let go. And after every one of those conferences, he had gone to the White House and had presented these insane dream lists and, you know, it was a matter of internal policy on the National Security Council staff. And, of course, I've said this on this uh, forum before, not a big fan of the National Security Council staff. They don't have any people with real combat experience. The, you know, the Wonderkun that's in charge there is a really you, wonky, wonky wonk. Thank you, know? you. Say again. Oh, yeah. So, um, but... But you've got a secretary of defense that is sitting there who understands the dynamic of logistics uh, pipelines needing to be constantly pressurized and ready to release at any time. And so when you heard about the Bradleys, here's a little here's a good example of them being up on the furthest edge of the Bradleys. Um, 
they're about to graduate this week 630 Ukrainian Bradley operators from the five-week U.S. Army course that they've been running in Graftonveer. And the Bradleys are not going to Graftonveer. The Bradleys are going straight to Ukraine right now, which means that these guys had already been in the pipeline, waiting around, studying the manuals, getting pre-positioned training packages um, on that. You remember the first uh, block of like 40 or 50 Bradleys was authorized. And then the second block, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the M1 tankers are already going through their paces and you're just not hearing about it. And that's a communication strategy that has worked well for this Pentagon. They like, you know, what I call fait accompli, um, you know, communications with, you know, strategic communications with the American people. Uh, you have to remember there is a political dynamic to this, although we've had a big change with Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, there is still this um, block of people in the United States Congress who are rabidly, rabidly anti-Ukrainian, and they are doing Putin's bidding. And unfortunately, they have 35 percent of the of the electorate behind them. So, um, you know, they and they have big ass mouths. So this is why you, uh, you, you, you know, you don't hear the Pentagon doing the talking. But, you know, the artillery shells have not stopped going to Ukraine. It's the big ticket items that get everyone's uh, attention, that get people to worry about, are we doing too much for Ukraine uh, that we're not doing for, you know, people on welfare in the United States, even though that particular political party couldn't give two, you know, couldn't give two cents about poor people in the United States. It's about doing Putin's bidding uh, because their former president was Putin's biggest cheerleader and actually, you know, facilitated his election with the assistance of Russia. But that being said, like I said, uh, um, Secretary Austin, he's a pressurized fire hose. And when he's given authorization to open his mouth, you suddenly find out amazing things come out of his mouth. And people were disappointed about Atacums in the last uh, in the last uh, release. But, you know, when you really put it into perspective, again, we're talking about the, you know, the small diameter glide bomb. You know, that's a murderously advanced weapon. I don't think the U.S. Army has that in inventory yet. And we're going to start rolling out systems that or or helping the Ukrainians develop systems that could really um, change the face of the war. I mean, the, the Israelis are saying that they won't provide Iron Dome to uh, to Ukraine, but suddenly they've warmed up to Ukraine. There's an entire buyer's market that the U.S. government is willing to fund to go to Ukraine. I mean, we bought, you know, I, I know I'm getting into it, but we bought like 10,000 multiple rocket, uh, not multiple rocket, but BMRL, right? Uh, the Russian multiple rocket uh, launch rockets from Pakistan ordnance. Uh, you know, and there are a lot of people out there in this game. I lived in the Middle East for, um, well, the better part of a, of a cent, you know, a third of a century. 
Um, I used to go to the defense shows in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and uh, and uh, in Usatari in Europe. And when you start realizing that Ukraine, here's a good example: United Arab Emirates has one of the biggest 5.56 millimeter um, ammunition, uh, you know, um, arsenals in the United in the in the world. They we built it for them, and they feel like they're being cut out of this market. So. All of these capabilities that are being announced have a dollar sign assigned to them. And I think as we're going into this next year, this is my prediction, as we're coming into this year, two things are at play. One, the nostalgia of the Ukrainians being these wild Cossacks, uh, you know, and beating the Russians senseless. And two, understanding the capabilities we're preparing for now are the next generation capabilities after Russia's defeat here this coming year, uh, which I, I, I thoroughly predict that. Look, I, I predicted Russia had no offensive capability left, and PMC Wagner pushing on Bakhmut is not an offensive capability. I mean, that's just, that's just them doing a local push. They have no way to launch anything at Ukraine ever again that will not just be summarily defeated, which means that this next year's capability is about taking back more, if not all, of Ukraine's uh, captured and occupied territories and positioning Ukraine for its future to defend against a perpetual war with Russia. I, I absolutely agree. Ukraine has a mortal and implacable enemy in Putin. Putin. And the, the only way for this war to end is for Putin to be defeated on the battlefield. There, there just isn't any you know, other solution. Well, in fact, um, and we were going to do a special show on this, so I'll introduce this now. Um, I have a substack. It's malcolmnance.substack.com, and you can go get a free subscription. Two weeks ago, I wrote an article called How Putin Will Die. And here's how he will not die. He will not die at the hands of NATO. He will not die at the hands of John Wick as hired by, you know, Vladimir Zelensky. Vladimir Putin will die at the hands of a Russian who has, this, whether it's oligarchs, or, or some other people who have decided that they um, that he is costing them far too much money to exist, and that puts us also in a dangerous situation, where you know the follow-on to Putin. Um, one of my scenarios I put in there was Prigozhin gets the confidence of commanders in the southern military, southern and southwestern military district, and somehow carries out a regional coup d'etat and, you know, calls upon the Russian people to get rid of the ineffective dictator. And then he gets the nuclear weapons from Engels Air Base and decides he's going to fight this war on his terms and, you know, gets the loyalty of the armed forces. I don't know. All I know is Vladimir Putin could wake up with a, uh, as we like to say, a lead-filled chain of com change of command ceremony. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, <laughs> even go to his national nuclear command post and somebody nuke it. I don't know how it's going to happen, but read the scenarios that I have out there because they're all based on leaders who have been assassinated. 
and they're always assassinated from the inside. Why don't you give that uh, Substack address again? Because I'm sure people would yeah. would like to. Sure. It's malcolmnance.substack.com. And uh, it's a great article. Uh, I think we should have a special show on that, get some more experts on. I think I think I think that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Uh, Malcolm, I I was talking just before you you came came on and uh, we're going through sort of a litany of things that that went wrong, virtually a catalog of any everything that you could possibly do wrong. In, in, an, in an offensive military action in, in Vuladar. And I'd like to get your, your take uh, on this. I mean, my, my, my trope here recently has been that despite places where they have numerical superiority, the Russians just do not seem to be able to put together a combined arms offensive operation. And given the given the balance of power uh, changes that are going to happen with these Bradleys, and more importantly, their trained crews, and as you said, the capabilities that they impart to the Ukrainian forces, what what what's your take on uh, what next spring is going to look like? Well, first off, the capabilities that we're putting in are not going to come online next spring. Let's be honest, and I I mention this every time I come on this show, and I I know we have new listeners, so I'll repeat it. When I took part in the Kharkiv Offensive as part of the Joint Special Operations or Combined Special Operations Task Group uh, that led the assault, we had behind us over 250 tanks. I was floored at how many tanks rolled up onto that battlefront. I have video where we, we just sat there for hours and watch this D-Day-like parade of armor that was not integral to the 92nd Division or the 10th Division or the 40th Division or even the 25th. They just plussed up with hundreds of extra tanks. And the majority of them were Polish, the Polish-supplied T-72s that I had seen in Yavorov training in April. And I knew that at some point they were going to concentrate that iron fist and punch somebody in the face. I, you know, of course, we all thought it was going to happen in Kherson, right? Uh, it turns out that they had managed to take that and use it up in Kharkiv province, smash through all the way to the Russian border, and now uh, have forces in northern Luhansk threatening Luhansk from the north. It also, uh, I mean, it liberated several hundred cities and six of uh, uh, villages in six cities and literally eliminated the entire northern sector of what at that time was the, you know, the, the pocket uh, in the Bakhmut area. Now it's more like an L uh, with little offensives going around trying encirclement. Um, but that capability, get it out of your head for this spring. Uh, if anything, I think the Ukrainians are going to do, you know, they're, they're going to maintain the tempo of their attacks um, based on intelligence I think what you'll see again this spring is you're going to see a massive, massive destruction of every artillery, uh, not just batteries, but every artillery uh, depot, any ammunition dumps. You guys remember that first week uh, when the HEMARS showed up that 28 ammo dumps were blown up. 
And, you know, it was like somebody, my joke was, you know, uh, I think I said this on air. I was on a TV interview and I said, thanks, you know, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, right? These are the guys who scrub maps, scrub satellite imagery, and they go, that's an ammo dump, that's an ammo dump, that's an ammo dump, that's a fuel dump, that's an ammo dump, that's a troop concentration. And they put 10-digit grids in, and the stroke of one key stroke, they show up inside HEMARS batteries in Ukraine, right? It's capability, you know, that, that Ukraine has, but they would have to use their persistent battlefield drones, they would have to use their spies. Hey, we, we can do that for you in a matter of a few minutes. And I think that that campaign, the uh, the strangulation campaign of the Russian army will begin again this spring. Um, I still maintain, I, I, if you go on my Substack, that malcolmnance.substack.com, I put out an annual, I, I put out a quarterly um, assessment of operations in Ukraine. And I said, Russia has no offensive capability. And I will say this again, Bakhmut is not an offensive. Bakhmut is a local tactical action. Because if that's an offensive, we're going to win this war a lot faster than even I predicted. Um, you know, I've seen a real offensive, the initial invasion attacks. I monitored, you know, the concentration of troops for a month beforehand. This is an army that hasn't even taken Avdivka, which Avdivka was 70 meters from Russian DPR lines when I was there on February 8th, one year ago, and they still haven't taken that place because they have concrete emplacements, minefields and depths, counter-battery artillery. Uh, they just can't. So the Russians are trying to go after uh, towns and cities, by the way, that have been fought on and exchanged hands two or three times since 2014. So, you know, the Ukrainians understand the terrain they're fighting on. They know how to make your life miserable. And here's one of the ways. Mind the hell out of every avenue of approach in case Russia decides to get froggy and make a quote-unquote offensive. And that's precisely what they did. I thought some of the footage I saw was actually relatively good combined arms attacks, right? Led off by tanks, followed up by uh, mechanized infantry, uh, you know, having, you know, and then more massed infantry coming along. And to be quite honest, I was I was quite shocked to find that these guys did not plan. If, if they planned on minefields, bringing one roller tank or one flail tank as the lead assault vehicle in what I call the land of javelins is not a tactic that is going to be successful. You have no way of, of, of neutralizing the, that grid out to two to three kilometers to keep their heads down. So stugnas and javelins aren't eating you for breakfast. Look, I, you know, I went to javelin school. I am one of the most jealous guys in the world right now. I wish that I was there and that I could help eat tanks too. But, I don't even think the Ukrainians have tried to stop these Russians. Minefields and artillery, as I understanding it, are doing all the killing right now. All of it. Even the tanks that are out there. Um, they're using precision weapons. Uh, I, like I said, we've seen really good footage of Excalibur rounds 
Uh, I've seen a couple of pieces of footage. I haven't seen as many bonus rounds as I would like. That's the one that has the four to five submunitions that come down and just put a copper, you know, a melted copper module through your roof. Um, you know, this is, I, I don't think the Ukrainians have even tried. But then using the, the penal colony, penal battalion uh, methodology, as I watched all of this, as they would take villages like Vuhidar, this is just straight up World War II Soviet tactics again. But you guys ever wonder why they have all that awesome drone footage? Because the Ukrainians have the intelligence capability to track just about anything across that 1,100 kilometer square uh, battlefront. They have a drone capability that is long term, enduring, persistent, you know, and it sees everything. So the Russians haven't been able to jam them away, shoot them down, do anything because they're so far away. And until the, I mean, the Ukrainians are literally looking at them get out of their trucks and putting artillery onto their asses. So, so long as that happens, if I were the Ukrainians, I would dig in, I would work with the Americans in NATO, and I would start finding that one scene between brigades or battalions that would allow them to do an actual good combined arm attack using the M113s, using the MRAPs, which we're seeing now, uh, using those, uh, what are those, Dutch... YV-492s, whatever the number is for those, those have upgunned M113s, so that when real capability comes out there, not just the Leopards, right? You know, they will do an experimental attack with Leopards combined with T-72s and the T-80s that they've captured, which, are you know, they have dozens, um, and they will split a seam along the, you know, somebody's uh, vulnerability that they've worked with NATO to, to find out. This is another thing. I'm really surprised. I mean, I spent my entire life preparing for the, you know, the hot war and the fold the gap and, you know, Middle East Arab allies assisting the, the Russian Navy in the Mediterranean and studying Rus Soviet, you know, satellite capabilities. They apparently suck. Okay. My headquarters got hit in Kharkiv, in a building which was known, known Soviet bunker from the 1960s, right? And it took them a month of shooting at us to actually hit our building. But we realized, and I told this to our brigade intelligence commander, I said, we're going to get hit, but we're not going to get hit for two weeks. And he was like, well, why do you think we're not going to get hit for two weeks? I said, I think they're using satellites to analyze us. And it apparently takes them about two weeks to do a scan of the whole city of Kharkiv and to look and adjust the fire on the targets they were hitting. They're not using maps. They're using satellite. He was like, then it's really slow. I go, ours is real time. Okay. Maybe a couple of hours. And so we're learning that about the Russians and it explains why they cannot find vulnerable axes of attack. They're just not us. But you know what? This spring, they're going to find out what getting their ass kicked by us is really like when our, you know, some of those experimental brigade, but, you know, brigades will get their vehicles swapped out and they will just do a reconnaissance in force using better technology, um, you know, to break through bunkers, to, to break through 
defenses. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do it along a the lines of an area that's under the control of Wagner to the south and a regular Russian battalion task group or, you know, to the north. And they just break through. And then suddenly, you know, my favorite phrase, what next, bitches? Right? You've got, you know, somebody's going to go, hey, we've got leopards to the north of us. You know, that's going to strike fear into their hearts. Now, it might be just 10, might be 15, might be just 20 leopards, but they're going to experiment with this. And Malcolm, the news this evening is, as quoted by a friend of ours, Mina Olanda, oh. uh, the German uh, Finnish woman who went back after many years in service, so to say, in Berlin. She went mm -hmm. back to Finland last year, as you know. And Mina, after having met with Ben Hodges yes. a couple of times last year, has been very, very active in, um, say, cajoling her countrymen to assume responsibility and maybe also from time to time become a little bit more communicative about it and see what happens this evening. The statement of the Finnish defense minister is that Finland is considering uh, to make a, a change on its policy in terms of communication, but and equally importantly, um, that it will deliver and make a decision on whether and how many leopard twos to deliver, and whether mm -hmm. to deliver both A fours and A six because it has both. Oof, man. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like the it's like the German leopard twos and the Spanish leopard twos are going to be like the training platforms. You know, um, I saw the interview with the battalion, uh, the brigade commander. Uh, who was pulled off, no, the battalion commander of the armored brigade that was pulled off line out of the, right out of the Donet sector, which I thought was gutsy, which tells me something, right? It tells me Donet sector feels really good about itself. <laughs> I mean, really good about itself. And he said that they pulled um, the first, I want to say, I can't remember the number, but it was close to 100 T-72 crews off the battle line, and that every man training to go on leopard is a highly combat experienced tanker. And the first thing he said was, they love this tank. You guys know what it's like when you get a weapon system that you love, right? I mean, uh, when I was, you know, I fired every weapon in the Ukrainian army. But when I got an M14 rifle with a thermal scope, you know, that gave me the day night capabilities of a sniper on a regular main battle rifle that it can reach out 500 meters, I became ecstatically happy because, you know, it's about the, as you guys keep saying, it's the capability of the weapon system to fill a gap. So imagine these first tankers getting boned up on an, you know, an A2 or, you know, an a, a older model Leopard and then suddenly getting the best model Leopard Right. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're swapping out just before the offensive. And now you're going to start murdering things. And again, this is where by I suspect June, there's going to be an uh, experimental offensive. And its job will be to crack part of the defensive line. If I had to predict anywhere, the line uh, north of Bahmut, uh, between uh, the Kharkiv and um Uh, the Kharkiv sector and the uh, and the you know, which is the northeast sector and the central sector, Luhansk sector, just to see if they could split that line, what they're calling the Wagner line, right? All the dragon teeth and anything. 
Forget about that. Get through one crack in that line, run through that line, get behind their lines, behind their minefields, and then trap them so that the minefields are in front of them and you got Ukrainians in front of them behind them. If there's a breakthrough attack that is a mobile attack, right? And the only thing I can see that could stop them is real land mining, right? Real mines. Um, then you could have a dynamic change in this war uh, that will be closer to Kherson and Kharkiv last year in a it, doing a reconnaissance in force, you know? And you might have an offensive, a micro-offensive that turns into a massive exploitation offensive. That would just be just perfect. Chuck, what say you to our Finnish friends? I am here. Yeah. Any questions? Yes, I, yeah. I, I do. And I just swing over to this. Uh, look, looking at these, uh, let's call them core incompetencies of the Russian forces. Uh, I was talking earlier right. uh, on the show about if you are unable to attack Vuladar with an overwhelming force in, in broad daylight on a pre-briefed operation, how can anyone expect the Russian armed forces to react to a dynamic, multi-pronged Ukrainian attack, which can only be broke, broken by sophisticated counterattacks? I don't think that, one, the Russian headquarters have the bandwidth to deal with that, and two, they're company-level officers. They don't have the initiative. They don't have the tactical authorization. They don't have anything it's going to take to react to this. And and look at the Kharkiv offensive, where they lost 60, 70, in some places, 80 kilometers. What, what do you think about that uh, coming up in June and beyond? Yeah, I, I, I think that that capability exists. And here's Here's another reason why. Remember I said all of those, you know, T-72 crews from those, you know, advanced Polish T-72s, the Czechs T-72s, that all pick up be, these guys I think are going to go straight to the battle. I think the Leopards are going to be running the rear. They're going to be, you know, doing lots of pillbox shooting, uh, you know. But all of those other T-72s are getting new crews. So what you've got here is you're now going for not just capability superiority, right? You're going for numeric superiority as well. There, you know, I'm seeing, T, I don't know if any of you have noticed anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot of T-80 tanks, right? And even some T, what is it, T-90s uh, that are out on the battlefield now. They're dumping all of their stocks into these attacks that are, they're being massacred. They will have no capability to stop what's coming here this spring. I said that last year. I was correct. I predicted that in June that it would take up to September to punch them in the face, to, to, to literally what I call stun and run, right? Stun and gun, uh, where you hit them so hard, they don't know what to do. And then they run. And that's what happened in Izium. That's what happened in Kupiansk. And you made it, you just made a reference to us. We hit our D our D plus three targets by lunch of D plus one. We're like, yeah. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. you know, you guys remember that famous video of me with the artillery piece behind me? 
That was morning special operations objective. It collapsed so fast, artillery came up 25 kilometers to fill the gap. And we were like, why is there artillery around us? Aren't we the pointy point? No, the Russians were running and all of their artillery stopped shooting in the first 20 minutes of that offensive because they wanted to survive. That's what we're going to see here uh, come this spring. But I really think it'll be on a micro scale. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried a multi-active, multi-axis exploitation attack slash reconnaissance in force where they just try to break through along those brigade axes just to see who breaks and runs, especially when you're rolling in and you're gunning at 40 miles per hour, right? You're not stopping. You're, you know, you can go really good, hold down. Uh, Air defense now has, you know, IRST and other systems above you. By the way, Chuck, big, I've been a huge, huge advocate of the Avenger missile system on the Humvee. Why, why were they not bringing those in last year? It's got a 50 cal and eight stingers. And what I got told was that we're trying to catch up to our stinger inventory. There were a hundred of them decommissioned two years ago from the national guard, you know, and they, you know, they upgunned to the striker air defense variant. Well, we've just seen how many, I, I can't remember how many are in this shipment. It might be eight or something like that. But, you know, if they're going to do an offensive, they're going to need more of those. Uh, because one, I was, just, I went through Stinger course, Stinger's a heavy weapon, uh, you know, and full disclosure, the day they took the Stinger from me, uh, they said we didn't need anything. And SG-34 flew over our position at 900 feet. So maybe we need more air defense systems going forward, and that will make these offensives much more successful. Yeah, there is, uh, you know, there, there's something, and I, I don't say this in, in defense of the Russian military, but no armed force on earth has ever faced such a sophisticated uh, saturation of anti-tank guided missiles and man pads, you know, shoulder-fired, heat-seeking anti-aircraft missiles on a battlefield, and it has flummoxed them. And, and interesting, Malcolm, you know, if we, we talk about what could be going on next summer, and I agree with you, but between now and next summer, Putin could also be dealing with three or four broken offensives that, that he's going to try. The, the White House put out a uh, warning today, it was in Politico, uh, telling the Ukrainians to brace for the imminent uh, Russian offensive. What do you make of that stuff? Well, I, I have to tell you, I've, I've, you know, I've identified this strategy. I actually really should do an article uh, for my Substack of what I call smashing, you know, head on anvil. And the Ukrainians have learned since 2014 how to create a very tight, deep defense, not just using trenches, but creating these giant artillery gaps, uh, you know, and allowing uh, these chains of villages. To be taken at great expense by the enemy. They really understood the concept of mobile uh, mobile uh, defense and an in-depth defense, which allows these Russian wave attacks, which the Ukrainians clearly knew the Russians were going to fall to, to smash against them. Severodonetsk and Lysychansk was the first. 
right? Uh, I had a lot of Legionnaires uh, fight in Severodonetsk, and um, they would just, they would make an objective, just breaching one street, and they would throw 20, 30, 40 guys, and their sole objective was to get across the street, and you just mow them down, and they'd fall back and get across the street, and eventually, um, you know, my guys right now have this problem uh, up in Kharkiv province. Their fingers get tired, right? Just shooting too many. Uh, and, you know, at some point, two, three, four guys get through and they create a beachhead. And then the Russians do it again. House to house, try to get across the next street. And apparently losing a thousand men in these human wave attacks is not a problem for them when they think that they're you know, you know, they have an inexhaustible human supply of penal battalions, which I understand now they're supposed to be taking from PMC Wagner and just creating straight up army penal battalions of guys who are going to be with the regular army, which tells you a little bit about what they think of Prigozhin. So uh, as Russia continues smashing their head open on this anvil, the Ukrainians are going to allow them to do it. Uh, and yes, they may have some tactical, political wins by uh, the way that they did in Lysychansk and Bakhmut. But I, I say it every time we talk on the show. Zelensky said, I will give them this village. We will get it back. And, you know, they, they lost 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 men on that village, right? None of this is an offensive. Don't even use the word. These guys are trying piecemeal to meet political, impossible political objectives that are being given to them by a guy that knows, you know, nothing about the armed forces. Um, Putin was a good KGB officer, mid-level KGB officer. He was great human intelligence guy. I sat in his desk that he used to work at in Dresden when he was working with the East German Stasi. He is not a tactician. He's not even he's not even Adolf Hitler. Right. He doesn't have any battlefield experience, uh, you know, the trauma of getting gas like Hitler did to even have any insight for his generals, um, you know, and he's changing commanders like he changes underwear. So all of this will benefit the Ukrainian forces. Uh, but all of those generals have are, are sort of like U.S. generals in Vietnam. Their political objectives are more important than the actual combat effects on the battlefield, so long as you can say you are not defeated. But the strategic battle is that, you know, and I, I can't believe that I actually had to say this on Real Time with Bill Maher a week ago, that Russia is losing badly, badly. Not even, it's not even close, right? Just because the U.S. News, uh, U.S. population picks their head up every once in a while and sees that Russia is carrying out an offensive, you know, <laughs> they're not winning in any way, shape, or form, politically, uh, tactically, operationally, whether at the, you know, the at the company, platoon company, you know, battalion, brigade, regiment, theater level, they are losing. And I can attest to that. You know why? I have a Russian brigade's command flag <laughs> that we captured Outside of Kharkiv, I got a BTG's flag. You, I, you lost your colors to me, which tells me that you really suck. So, uh, as you know, as you say, Chuck, maybe they'll, <laughs> maybe they'll smash their head on the anvil four or five more times this spring. 
but it will not even amount to us calling it an offensive. It's just a slaughter. Well, they lost, uh, what's it, 31 battle tanks of two different kinds. They lost IFVs. In addition, we do not actually even know a full-blown number. And it's also a matter of whether we just calculate Vuladar 1 or also Vuladar and surroundings 2. And it's right. supply route 3 plus this big um, depot which went up in the back of theirs, 4. So all in total, they may have just lost about anywhere between 50 and 60 uh, vehicles. That is normally what you need for a proper battalion. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and they lost it to one brigade and the and the and the uh, and the sector level um, and the sector level artillery support units. Artillery did most of that killing. <laughs> I mean, that's and uh, have you guys noticed Ukrainian drones are getting a lot more interesting and accurate, right? I've I've just uh, we lo- we've we uh, I'll tell you one thing. Up in the north sector, we're seeing a higher level of ECM come out of Russia countering drones but apparently down in Bahamut and Donetsk or, you know that area they're you know did you see the drone grenade on the string that they actually reeled the grenade down into the open cupola and dropped the grenade at a height of like one meter and it went right down into the cupola and it hit the guy who was the tanker in the back I mean, it's this adaptability of the Ukrainians is really, really getting good. And it's it's a combination of bored soldiers uh, who really want to kill their enemies. But I don't think any I don't think Russia has it in them. This talk of doing another reinvasion of Kharkiv, really, you won't even assemble in Belgorod without the Ukrainians hitting you. And believe me, they will use it. Demars on you, or uh, Hemars on you. They don't care whether you're in Russia. If you're within range, and they see a thousand or two thousand of you starting to, you know, get together to uh, carry out an operation, the Ukrainians will defend themselves. But I think the strategy now is to let Russia smash their brains out and uh, make Putin make Sergoy take a long walk out of a short window. Yeah, I think I agree with you that, you know, I was I was uh, previously thinking slash hope that uh, Ukraine would uh, engage in a hard frost uh, offensive here. But I, I think given, you know, given uh, the toys that are uh, going to eventually arrive on the battlefield and and given the ineptitude of the Russian commanders and the bad training of their people on the pointy end, I think it's a much better idea to let Putin uh, try his offensive hand here. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot of Vuladars. I also expect, uh, you know, I expect something to kick off here uh, soon. We're coming up the one year anniversary. Uh, Putin, I think we're going to, we're going to hear about that mobilization of fill in the number of a hundred thousand people and civilians aren't soldiers, folks. Uh, You know, Putin's going to need a win and uh, I don't see it happening this winter. No, any whoops. Yeah, my mic's on. Um, no, he's he's not gonna he's not going to he's not going to win. Um, you know, this is it's a little colder than last winter, but it's still milder than it should be. Um, 
And I know uh, I've just sent over 50 new sets of winter whites and our guys are like, yeah, thanks. We're fine. You know, keep asking if they want more cold weather gear. And they're like, nope, we got enough. Um, you know, even if it gets cold in March, they're, they're good to go. But why? I think if anything happens, if the Russians are expecting it, the Ukrainians may do some operational deception. I would start massing lots of artillery, lots of, you know, of, 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 of resupply in places that you are not going to do an offensive and make it look like you're going to do two or three offensives and uh, do what we did, you know, in, um, in Kharkiv, which was, you know, to break through, but the real Rochambeau was uh, to kick you, uh, kick you in the Kherson nuts. Right. So uh, use that level of strategic deception, let the Russian satellites see stuff. Uh, I would even bring in more, I would bring in bunches of leopard decoys, right? Pull the full Patton, you know, uh, which army, fifth army or the, the imaginary army. And, you know, let's have fun. Right? If this is going to be a giant NTC exercise, let's use all the resources and uh, let the Ukrainians, you know, work with, you know, the Fort Leavenworths and, and, uh, you know, NATO headquarters and, uh, and uh, and Potomac, Maryland, and figure out where the best place to carry out these trial attacks. And if they turn out to be something where you crack through, then you do a push and you call it inoffensive. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think I can argue with anything you're saying, Malcolm. And I, I, I absolutely agree. You, you don't. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> Roll your dice with that one. You know that. I mean, you know, you're a cagey old senior chief. Exactly. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to see how everyone's operating interoperability. And I think this is a good time this winter. Look, we know the political, Russia operates on political decisions. Putin foot puts his finger on a map. He says he wants an offensive here. Nobody talks straight to that guy. And let's let them try. Let's let them put put all their stuff together, and let's let them try offensive operation. And like you like you say, Malcolm, artillery is the king of battle, and that's why. Jens, I was just coughing. I apologize. Sorry, my mic was... I think I lost everything. There you go. I said if I were the secretary, I would, would have cut a deal with the Ukrainians saying, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's um, let the, the leopard come online and let's do some limited operations and let's use the M1 platoons, you know, stay back, um, hold them off the line with, you know, M1s are going to stay with the Bradleys. They're going to Things are going. That's where the Bradleys are going to be, right? Everybody's trained the same. Everyone reads the same field manuals. You know, uh, that's what they're going to do. But I would say wherever you break through in the south, or in the north, or the west, let's um, let's let you break through. I want those Bradleys and Abrams to be used as an intimidation tool or a deception to say, 
Bradleys and Abrams are breaking through another part of the line just to panic the Russians. Yeah, and there is a there is a terrific gap between Russian battlefield intelligence and the the sort of intelligence that informs U- Ukraine's battlefield decisions. You know, the Russians are really struggling. I mean, like you said, Malcolm, a two week two week targeting cycle, uh, you know, with a satellite in two weeks. Yeah, no, it, no. Oh my God, it was so. so- Yeah, it was terribly obvious. The guns were just 36 kilometers away. I mean, you know, they were two S1P loans. But, you know, it's like if you really could see us and how far off you missed by 100 meters this week. And I kept going there. It's, it, I, you know, I mean, to the point where I could say we're getting hit in the next at the end of the next 14 day cycle. And then it happened. And I go, bad satellite readouts. They're just really that bad. So. I think the op tempo of this war is going to change dramatically come this spring. I think what you'll see is less rope-a-dope, which is what's going on now, and more short, intense jabs um, to, uh, to, to the midsection and headbutts. It'll be more like MMA, right, uh, than, than it will be a, a Queensberry rules attacks this year. And then at some point, you know, the Ukrainians are going to throw their legs around the, you know, the Russians' neck and flip them over and take them down and pin them. Question is, where will it come from? But I would definitely use the, the, you know, the operational deception arts to make them very afraid. Constantly talk about the Abrams coming and kicking your ass. Constantly talk about massive leopard breakthroughs, right? Get it in their head. Because you know what's not going to save the Russians? An armada <laughs> tank, right? T, you know, the T-80 is already being wiped out. The T-90s are being destroyed by, you know, bombs dropped off. You know, RG-1 hand grenades dropped off of Mavic 3 drones, okay? You're losing the cream of your armed force to these, to these tiny drones. So I don't think that... Um, Whatever Russia is going to do is going to work at this point. Oh, by the way, and I don't see a strategic replacement happening in the Russian forces. They are not, you know, building at the World War II levels. And as some scallywag on the Internet once said, um, the reasons that the Russian army won were and had the mobility that they had was because, you know, we supplied tens of thousands of jeeps. We supplied hundreds of thousands of trucks, you know, f- you know, five ton trucks, two and a half, two and a quarter ton uh, armored personnel carriers, half tracks. You know, the Russian front was not all Russian vehicles. And now Russia is finding out what it's like to have no industrial base, uh, you know, in a war where 80 percent of their most advanced forces were around Ukraine and maybe they will be destroyed utterly in the next year. I mean, like 100% of every tank that took part in the invasion could in fact be destroyed by the end of this year. That's not good, right? Which model, which tank model did the Soviet Red Army have most of in the Second World War? M40, M4, (laughs) right? Exactly. The Sherman. Yes, exactly, the Sherman. You'd never know it. 
No, you would never. Okay, we have questions from Ander and from Weidland. Ander. So, uh, I have so many questions. Um, first and foremost, uh, one of my questions is regarding ammunition. So, there has been um, there have been some um, reports, uh, and not only reports. Um, um, Borel, um, Kaya Kalas, and Ursula von der Leyen, uh, all three of them, have asked for a, a common way in which, um, in which um, the shortage, the, the foreseen shortage of ammunition um, could be solved. So uh, Kaya Kalas actually came with, with a, an idea um, that um, the EU um, should put together 3.6 uh, billion euros and to um, uh, buy um, like like to buy like they did with the COVID uh, with the um, uh, vaccine um, for COVID. Um, so, uh, so buy for for all the countries. A joint, yes, a joint, joint. purchase facility. Yes, that's the the word that I was look, looking for. I'm sorry. So, uh, this was her idea. Um, I I understand that uh, Mr. Borrell will present on Monday uh, at the um, um, foreign ministers of EU um, at the. It's gonna be uh, so tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is gonna be a, a reunion um, of the foreign ministers of um, um, EU, and he will he will uh, actually um, uh, present some plans on on this. Um, and to my understanding, Ursula von der Leyen is backing up this this plan. Um, actually. <laughs> So my question is, could this work? Um, do, do we actually have a chance of, of making this work and send as uh, a community um, um, ammunition to Ukraine uh, for, for them not to uh, get to a point in which having all the Bradleys and, and all uh, other equipments already arrived um, not to have enough ammunition for them? Yeah, it, yeah, it absolutely can work if we have a consortium approach towards resupplying Ukraine. I think that that's what most of the Ramstein conferences agreed to. You're talking about a solid commitment to a body of ammunition. Uh, but I think that each of these countries is doing that. The United States, I think that when they commit, um, you know, a Bradley to that, we, we now know what the uh, ex ammunition expenditure tempo of Ukraine is. Uh, some areas are hotter than others. Uh, where they're hot, they're very hot. But it's not just ammunition, right? Uh, it's it's the, the links on the ammunition. It's the, you know, the feed tray uh, guides that will get worn down as they shoot. It's definitely the barrels, right? We're going to go through barrels. You see some of these BTR-4s 
uh, you know, they're burning out barrels. So, I mean, left and right. So I suspect that when we have these commitments to ammunition, for every dollar of ammunition, there's probably one or two dollars of, you know, supporting, uh, you know, co- you know, ma- ammunition material support and logistics that has to go with it. I think it's a brilliant idea to go consortium pr- approach, but it could also be as simple as the, the European Union completely and totally separate from NATO committing to creating an ammunition pipeline that will support Ukraine for the foreseeable future that will that will uh, increase their own national industrial capacity to make more bullets for themselves. We now know we're shooting the Russians at the beginning of this war were shooting at World War II. German levels of fire and that the Ukrainians were shooting at American desert storm levels of fire, right? Very limited, you know, what might seem like a lot of ammunition, but because we have a lot bigger guns, a lot more accuracy, we don't have to shoot as many rounds, whereas the Russians are just pounding those rounds out there. So we now know that wars are going to go one of two ways, just boatloads more of solid steel, or that solid steel is going to need a precision warhead on it to neutralize what would take 10, 20, 30 rounds of artillery. And I suspect it'll start as a giant strategic debate about uh, about how they, they use ammunition and particularly artillery. The British are already voting with their pocket. Their regiment, their art, regimental artillery is shifting away from guns and towed guns to almost all MLRS, you know, which is why you saw them give away a lot of their uh, 105 millimeter field guns um, and, you know, uh, some of their self-propelled artillery systems. But I'm not sure if that works for everybody, but it works for England, whereas Central Europe, Mic check. Malcolm received a call. Uh, and that stuff is hard rolled steel, right? Man killing, ground shaking steel. So I think that idea is brilliant. Someone is insisting. Malcolm? It seems we've lost Malcolm for a second. I think Putin is calling him and trying to surrender. Yeah, I wish he was. Can you guys hear me now? We got, we got you now, brother. All right. Where did I drop out? <laughs> it, it was a couple of minutes ago. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry you, to make you do that again. You anyway. said it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, that was where I stopped. <laughs> you, you talked about uh, the Brits, uh, about their choices, and after that, 
you mentioned it it's a brilliant um this this is a brilliant idea it's a brilliant idea that's it that was the last thing i said well you thank you brilliant idea because we <laughs> All righty, then let's move to the next question. We have a uh, um, hand up, finance. Hi, Malcolm. Hi, Chuck. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks very much, Malcolm. Uh, question on the state of the Russian tanks. You were discussing how they're sending all their good stuff, and they're sending that uh, with a bunch of guys we know were, many of them were very recently trained, and I use the word trained loosely. I've been asked this question a lot. Um, one, is the equipment they're sending now at least in working order? I know earlier in the war, there was a lot of discussion from captured Russians about how they'd have a tank that would drive or a tank that would shoot and none that would do both and plenty that didn't do either. So one, is their current uh, stuff hitting the battlefield even working? And two, um, are they still surrendering, running from, leaving, losing tanks in working condition to the Ukrainians uh, at a very high level? Well, from what I understand, you know, it just depends on what kind of tank we're talking about. We're seeing, uh, you know, what's coming out of war stocks are all T-62s and in some cases T-55s, uh, the oldest models of T-72, like the original ones, many without reactive armor. Uh, they may be getting upgunned. We don't know where they all are. The Russians are planning on using those in the, that mobile pillbox strategy. but. It ain't going to help them because if there's any one thing that I know, I mean, I, you know, I went to Irpine, I went to Bucha, I went around, I saw the, you know, the results of the Hostomel attack and I saw a lot of destroyed armor in Kharkiv province. If there's anything I've learned is that every time I looked into a tank, I saw three charred corpses, not even corpses, you know, carbonized body parts. Um, who are the, who's going to replace those? Who are the people that are actually going to train those crews to survive the war that they're in? I don't know. There was a, there was a, a bit of information today uh, I put up. A lot of the Russians' S-300 air defense systems, and these are the sort of less mobile but more capable uh, air defense systems, a ring of them. Uh, around Mariupol defend Crimea. Uh, also, they're the principal weapon used to used to uh, defend the Kerch Bridge. Those things are getting sent back to Russia because the newly updated S-300s, they are failing in the field. And part of the reason is their crews cannot carry out the routine maintenance on these missiles. And... Uh, you know, that is bad. And every one of those systems that get pulled off the line becomes an opportunity for Ukraine. That's a good point. And, you know, as you spoke it, the first thing that popped into my head was if I were going to make a big push, right? If we were going to really, 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 really make the Russians think that something is happening, I would do uh, an activity that we did at the beginning of Desert Storm. They don't have that capability yet. Maybe it's something that we can build for them or, or, or get out there, which is to send a boatload of dummy or, or uh, kamikaze drones 
to start smashing all the air defense along one line of approach to give them the belief that we're coming down that that line of approach. You don't want to use a harm missile, and you know you don't need an AGM-88 is over a million dollars, right, to take out one air defense point that you may be able to go to. The Ukrainians again are very adaptive. I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, the long-range drone that they're building is being built in conjunction with. Uh, other U.S. Um, contractors at the, you know, at the pay of the U.S. government or on their own. Uh, and then so someday you find out that they've got, you know, a thousand, one thousand kilometer flying kamikaze drones that are, you know, auto autopiloted and auto targeting. Right? <laughs> this is just the way this war is going. This, you know, and if they do that within this next year, then, uh, you know, then Russia's air defense is meaningless, right? We're finding out that these guys aren't even, you know, one thing that I'm really surprised about, I'll just give you a battlefield observation. I see a lot of surface-to-air missiles. The one weapon system that I had worked around my whole career with, like the Libyans, the Syrians, the Arab armies, is the Z, uh, ZSU-23-4, the Shilka. The only ones I've ever seen are the Ukrainian ones. You know, that thing puts a boatload of bullets up into the air simultaneously. Um, what are the Russians defending with? As the old saying goes, you know, where air defense at? So, um, but if their systems are in bad condition, I would definitely pressure them. I would find some way, whether it's an electronic warfare pod uh, that's on a Bayrock tar, to believe that there are 300 missiles coming in. So they just put every S-300 they have up into the air against a bunch of spoof targets. You know, this is the old cryptologist in me coming out, right? So, uh, you know, waste their resources without expending anything other than electronic warfare capability. You can put it on an MI-17. Um, you know, you could even build a remote control plan or use uh, what the TU-140, is it the TU-141 uh, remote drone putting, you know, jammer and spoof pods on it. Just something use their resources up but yeah. you know but not surprising that was one of the principal uses in the later career of the TU144 was a deep penetrating electronic warfare aircraft and you know we've mentioned this a couple of times uh Ukraine was the brains of the Soviet Union uh, a, a lot of their missile and space technology, these were Ukrainian scientists, their shipbuilding, you know, Malcolm, you and I remember when, yep. you know, the Eve and the, and the Moscow, they've read, you know, they've revolutionized naval warfare. And it was Ukrainians who built those ships. And, uh, you know, what, whatever, the U Ukrainians have got some uh, gee whiz and wunder weapons. Nothing on their books could have hit the Engels II airbase. Nothing on their books could have hit the Kerch Bridge, and nothing on their books could have messed up the Saki Naval Air Station in Crimea. And, uh, you know, again, intellectual advantage has got to go to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, look at the look, look at some of the revolutionary systems no one knows about, the, the Neptune missile, right? It sank their flagship. My favorite is the low, low profile, remotely guided drone boats, right? The, you know, the, un, the un, unmanned surface craft that they had where they made an attempt to, uh, you know, sink all the ships in the vessel. 
I wouldn't be. And my favorite part was the video of the helicopters doing exactly what we do, which is trying to shoot at them with 7.62 millimeter guns from a hover and missing. <laughs> you know, I mean, what if they quadrupled that attack and literally blasted every ship in Sevastopol? Uh, you know, or if they were smart and they would call me and put me into GERS Naval Intelligence, I would start remote drone mining. Uh, I would start putting, maybe quietly get Mark 50 ad cap torpedoes from the United States and go kilo submarine hunting with a remotely guided surface vehicle. So there's a lot of adaptability out there. By the way, when that submarine sinks, you can say you heard it. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. Those Kilo submarines, they go to firing boxes and they let loose their caliber missiles. They've got X number of firing boxes and you get in there and saturate the zone with some drones. Uh, boy, you could just slightly modify uh, one of those anti-armor uh, grenades and that you sink a Kilo and, uh, you know, that victory is worth its weight in gold. Well, I'm telling you, I mean, I, I've, I've given this a lot of crazy thought because, like I said, the first three months of this war, I worked for their intelligence agency and uh, I had nothing to do with the sinking of the Moskva. I'm so unhappy. I had nothing to do with the sinking of the Moskva. But um, but going after those kilos, you're right. They launch in boxes. They think that they're far away enough. And the key is, is that what if you don't actually have to use a kilo? What if you just make, um, you know, put those UUVs out there, right? And starts, you know, turning screws, let it, let it, you know, float its way out there. And then when you get into a kilo box, right? I mean, I'm, I'm submarine qualified. If I were to start hearing high speed boat screws, right? And, uh, you know, uh, pulling circles, uh, and dropping one or two Sono boys, even if you had no capability, I will never come to that box again because I will have to assume you're doing something clever, which means I push you back maybe another 100 kilometers. Now you have a missile launch, you know, um, zone that is 100 kilometers short. So maybe you can't hit Lviv anymore from that box. So... <laughs> The Ukrainians could be doing a lot more clever stuff. I don't know if they're not there. Uh, if I get back and they ask my opinion, a lot of this stuff could could become real. I mean, you know, one thing I think is interesting is that the UK has provided a make, number of seats um, that could make the Russians terrified of even getting underway. I mean, I've been at 35 feet with the periscope up. When high-speed craft come out, it's like, well, this billion-dollar submarine now has to go down to 300 feet and wait it out. You just don't know. I mean, anything to spoil their game. I may do an article about that. You know, I, I think I was just talking over you, Malcolm, and I apologize, but I think it's uh, more than interesting that the U.K. has provided a number of uh SH-2 Sea King helicopters to the Ukrainians. And as us old salts remember, the uh, the Sea King was a mainstay of anti-submarine warfare. 
and uh, continued in that role uh, much longer in the Royal Navy than it did for the U.S. Navy. And uh, right place, right time with one of those helicopters. And uh, the things that a Mark Mark 42 uh, ADCAP torpedo can do are pretty damn amazing. And believe me, no kilo submarine at flank speed is going to outrun that torpedo, which in my submarine days used to be known as Little Wish Me Dead. Yeah, the UK will have to provide a few more Sea Kings with different kind of setups because the ones which they sent were the off-lease German safe and rescues. They, they, yeah, they don't have the gear, but uh, you know there are there. Are, but the gear, you know, the, would be less. On Chuck, you are breaking up. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, I just, you know, the, the Ukrainians have overcome so many other technical uh, problems, and they do have some ASW gear, uh, the, the Ukrainians actually do. It may be a bit dated, uh, but some of the things Malcolm was talking about, uh, you know, uh, sauna buoys, uh, un underwater, uh, in, in interfering with the underwater soundscape, the, these are things that, uh, you know, that, that, that they could do. And it's, it's much more important that even some of these little deception operations, as Malcolm said, they can put the Russians off their game in the Black Sea. And those those unmanned surface vessel attacks that happened against Sevastopol, none of those blew up any Russian ships, but they made the larger majority of the Russian surface combatants. They left Sevastopol, and that was important. What is it? Uh, what would happen? And Malcolm, just to follow your idea from yep. earlier on, before we go to other hands, um, the combination of missiles and drones. On the one hand, we have drones which now can operate significantly deeper into enemy territory. We haven't, however, seen more than what the Bayraktars can deliver. We haven't given them, or oh, sorry, the United States has not yet given them um, drone capacity, which it fears it might lose and then it could be taken apart and we understand why however the attackums they won't lose the attackums would give ukraine the capacity to hit as we said before those six if not eight choke points logistical choke points there are for the russian troops and they could hit the Kurt bridge but they could definitely definitely hit Rangoy, saki and of course the jetties ammunition depots and fuel depots of Sevastopol. Yep. Isn't it time now? Yeah. I, I, I can you guys actually still hear me? Yeah, buddy, we got you. All right. Yeah, I would, I, if I were the Ukrainians, I would give the Americans some guarantees. I would say we will not hit Belgorod unless it's just the ammunition and fuel dump. All right. Strict, strict. You choose the target. We'll do it. But in in you in Crimea, which is why we came out and made that statement that Crimea is Ukraine, and they can do anything. I would definitely give them the capability to destroy um, as many naval resources that are that are there as 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 best as possible. Now, if I were the Ukrainians, you know, getting on that last theme that we had about anti-submarine warfare. 
I would go out to Raytheon or whoever it is that builds that warhead, and I would say, hey, um, when you build the, uh, when you provide us with, uh, you know, the ATACMs, do you have an ATACMs that you could put a, you know, a Mark 40, a Mark 50 ADCAP torpedo in? Just create us a dome, <laughs> right? So that you could drop a torpedo somewhere, right? It's, we have that capability, our, our old anti-submarine rockets. Our, uh, you know, we have torpedo launched uh, that can be launched out of modular uh, As- vertical launch. Azraq, Azraq, you got it, Malcolm. Azraq, and they, right. Even sub sub launched anti submarine. You know, your submarine can launch this rocket that bursts out of the water, travels. Uh, I'll not say the distance, but re-enters the water as a torpedo. Extremely. Right. And all it needs is the hardiness of the torpedo to be able to take a rocket ride, which we have, and to fall into the water. Uh, and I, I, if I were the Ukrainians, I'd be developing that on my own right now, right? <laughs> just, just so that uh, there's some capability to start killing these caliber missiles in the, in the tube, so to speak. Um, and nothing, nothing, nothing is more terrifying. Okay. And trust me, I've been on the receiving end, uh, in a place that I shouldn't have been. Nothing is more terrifying than hearing torpedo in the water. Right. Oops. There's not supposed to be anything out here. So, uh, you know, the Ukrainians could do that, uh, or even say they've done it. And, um, you know, and when they don't believe it, then actually do it and kill a submarine. And that could change the entire dynamic of this war. Caliber missiles could be cut in half, uh, you know, if you if you were to do that. Also, we haven't seen anything, you know, the, uh, you know, the the um, manifestation of the harpoon missile yet uh, take place out of Ukraine. I haven't seen any information on launchers. But then again, we didn't know much about the Neptune. Uh, but the harpoon is out there now. And, uh, you know. The Russians have to stay very, very, very far away uh, for their ships to be outside of that, uh, you know, that those kill boxes of those uh, surface to surface missiles. Yeah, we have Denmark to thank for that. They uh, they adapted the harpoon, which was uh, initially a, a anti ship weapon carried by surface ships and then later American submarines. But uh, it was the uh, the Danes who adapted that as a mobile ground-based uh, shore defense weapon. And Malcolm, you are absolutely right. We started this war with Russian surface ships shelling ground targets in Mariupol, and they don't right. dare do that again. Yeah, um, and and that's a good thing. Uh, also, full disclosure, I'm sure I'm the only person that's ever been on the Miria report to survive a harpoon missile attack. Uh, missed my ship in 1988 in the Battle of Siri Island by 150 feet. Uh, so it was unpleasant the whole time that it was coming at us, but we managed to seduce it. An Iranian launched one. But uh, you know what? They got more than one. So, you know, it, it, it in its own way has already changed the dynamic of the war along with the Neptune missile, which is a layered anti-ship uh, capability that the Russians don't want to know about. But by God, if I were the Ukrainians, I would definitely be using their, you know, unmanned, you know, their their unmanned surface 
stealth surface vehicles to uh, try to deliver something somewhere. Yeah, it's a it's a technological game here, and without reigniting the attackums controversy, uh, the, all the United States has said is that it did not transfer attackums missiles to to the Ukrainians. I'm not going to go through the litany, but there are several very close U.S. allies uh, who had attackums missiles and were not not prohibited from providing them to Ukraine. And again, I only bring this up because y- Ukraine has shown that it can hit targets that are outside the envelope of any known weapon system that it has. And I'm talking about Saki and I'm talking about the Kerch Bridge. And, uh, you know, we've just seen on this. When you see the ribbon cutting on the new reopened Kerch Bridge, uh, let's see how long the uh, the westbound highway lanes last this time. And I'm giving it a week tops. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a surprise <laughs> a surprise visit during the ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would be precious. I would. I would just wait. I'd wait for the live feed. Even, you know, I'd make you look clearly the Ukrainians have really good spies. They blew that bridge using humans. All right. That was not a truck. Been around a lot. Survived truck bombs. That was not a truck. All right. Somebody precision planted explosives on the underside of that span, probably living there for days on pallet on uh, scaffolds like they did in World War Two and just blew it at their leisure. So even if that you don't hit that bridge, I would definitely fire something, right? Whether it's um, a, a TU-141 or just I would put something down the bearing of that attack so people can go screaming and running for their lives off that bridge on live television. All righty. So we have uh, Finus's hand up. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, wow. I'm so tempted to wade into the attackums debate. It's literally my brand. That said, uh, I, I actually had a, a small follow-up on my, my earlier questions as to the quality of uh, Russian tanks, and that was on the Ukrainian side. Um, you know, the Ukrainians clearly did not start this war with the level of equipment, especially mechanized equipment of anything, whether it be armored personnel carriers, uh, basic trucks and Humvees or tanks and IFVs uh, that they needed for the scale of warfare uh, uh, that we have now. But they've, they've you know, acquired a lot, uh, both from, uh, you know, friendly countries like uh, us here in the States and uh, from the less friendly Russians who, who seem to abandon a lot of it. So part of my, my original question was, are the Russians still abandoning a lot? And, and then if their stuff is that's on the field is working now, uh, is the stuff that's being abandoned sort of quicker, faster, better to to go, right? Is, the, is that rate of Russian, uh, the, the Russian land lease, as we jokingly call it here, uh, is that still going on at a high level to help uh, the Ukrainians increase their, uh, uh, you know, armored vehicle stock, for lack of a better term? Yeah. As I, my favorite video of last year, of all of last year, second, well, maybe second only to the one about the Canadian Army, and the Canadian underwear that are being provided 
was the defense U- uh, Ukraine um, video that they put out about the, you know, lend, you know, not lend lease, but uh, donations and, you know, the United States, X number of vehicles and tanks and Germany and blah, blah, blah. And then they go, and our greatest thanks goes to our largest donor, Russia. <laughs> it's over 500 main battle tanks and vehicles. The Ukrainians are repairing and putting them all back on the battlefield. And they have a massive amount for the ones that are damaged are good replacement stock. I mean, not the ones that are destroyed. The destroyed ones, you know, hollow out really immediately. But, you know, uh, there's reactive armor on the battlefield that, that you know, works to a certain extent. Uh, we just saw, I just saw some imagery the other day of a Czech T-72 with a brand new suite of Ukrainian reactive armor, a rubber um, a rubber skirt, new gun firing positions on them. Yes, the Ukrainians are adapting and they're putting everything on the battlefield. Uh, and again, they're not relieving T-72s with M1 Abrams or Leopards. Those T-72s will remain in service. The, their force is growing, uh, is now multiplying. All righty. Our colleague Jorn is coming up. I knew this would happen because we were talking maritime things. <laughs> well, I, I, if you talk maritime things, I actually didn't hear that. I just had heard the last question, and I would, I would add to that because I know that uh, both the uh, main battle tank manufacturing plant in uh, Kharkiv was uh, hit in the beginning of the war, and as far as I understand, some of the others, the um, uh, upgrade plants and the parts plants that are uh, that used to be different places around Ukraine may also have been hit. Do we know if they have rebuilt or if they still have some capacity to uh, to to fix on, on a more industrial scale than the workshops to, to fix captured Russian tanks or even uh, take out of their own, own uh, old stocks and, and uh, upgrade uh, T-64s and stuff? Thanks. Um, the Ukraine. I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, you know, even the old stuff, they have the T-62 mods. Um, I haven't seen any T-34s or T-55s yet. Uh, but if it's a, if it's upgradable and operational, it's out there in some way, shape or form, whether it's with a uh, territorial defense unit uh, or training platforms. Uh, but like I said, when the Polish T-72s were delivered, I was training out in Western Ukraine and on the base where they all showed up and they all showed up and those tanks were on the range running day and night for a month. So, you know, that tells you that the Ukrainians uh, are using whatever resource they get at hand, their own. Uh, many of their stocks were some in the early war, the non-operational vehicles that were in certain parts of Donetsk. And, uh, you know, there's there's losses. I think Orenskop has a, a really good chart on documented losses. But I think, as I understand it, three times the amount of what was lost has been replaced with Russian captures.
did I lose you guys? No, no, no. You made your point, and I was just about to give Jaren the possibility for. All right. Yeah, that will be my last. You know, have to move on. Brilliant. Thank you for your answer. Go ahead, Jaren. Yeah, no, I was thanking you for your answer. That's that's brilliant. I I didn't catch the maritime discussion you had earlier, but uh, I'll catch on if it continues. Uh, and they were discussing. Go ahead with the next question. uh, Malcolm brought up the. Yeah, the, the, uh, let me just summarize what Malcolm explained earlier. It was a discussion as to the unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, the unmanned maritime drones uh, with which they threatened and tested uh, the threat matrix for the port of Sevastopol. And uh, his suggestion, Malcolm's suggestion was to invest significantly more time and effort into this in order to find a way to potentially challenge a kilo-class submarine and sink it in order to change um, yeah, the um, design of the battlefield and uh, how the Russian fleet would potentially therefore then behave. Yeah, I, I hope I, that is a fair summary. I, I totally agree, and I think I, I understand that the Russians really need wants that Black Sea fleet base on the Crimea, and and the easiest way to uh, make them forget about having that is just to sink their entire fleet so they don't need it anymore. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that option. <laughs> All righty. Chuck, uh, you were saying, and then you broke up. Uh, oh, I was simply saying that, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of sinking the Black Sea uh, feet as well. I, I'll just uh, toss this out here informationally. The uh, the 6.30 briefing of the Ukrainian general staff is up. Uh, unfortunately, I posted a map. Uh, I tried to outweigh the general staff. They were a little late with this report. Uh, Ukrainian air operations kind of come and go. They had, uh, within the last 48 hours, they had a day where they only put two combat sorties. But today they launched uh, 20 aviation strike missions Seven of those missions took out uh, Russian surface-to-air missile uh, uh, platforms. That's uh, that's seven more missile complexes added to our discussion there, Malcolm. Uh, they've also, uh, Ukrainian air defenses today shot down uh, a Russian Su-25 strike aircraft. They shot down uh, two uh, Russian reconnaissance UAVs, Orlan-10s, and also three uh, Lancet uh, loitering munitions that the Russians have. Uh, so a bad day for Russian uh, aviation and a bad day for Russian air defense. And these are think, the sort of things. Yeah, go ahead. I don't think their aviation is having a bad day yet. Um, well, they pretty good. As I, under, as I understand it, you know, they're, they're talking about doing uh, the, the, the Russian version of Operation Linebacker which is throw every aviation asset in Russia, in Western Russia at Ukraine simultaneously to uh, have them come in and dummy bomb and just, they, I think Putin wants, I swear to God, he wants video of dumb bombs, carpet bombing Kiev. Um, <laughs> it's an adventurous proposal. It's one that makes me angry because one, I hope I hope they don't start it before I can get on a flight. 
back to Ukraine and go back to third battalion and get my stinger. Uh, because everyone's getting a kill it, when that one happens. Uh, and it will be the slaughter. It'll be the, it'll, it will literally be the charge of the light brigade. And I, I think we're going to call that the light brigade strategy where you just right into the jaws of death. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it would be, to to discuss what those air defense kills are today, the Orland 10 is a is basically a large hobbyist airplane, yeah, slow, uh, kind of predictable, easy to down. But when you talk about these Lancet threes, they are they are about the size of a man standing there with his arms outstretched. That would present probably you know twenty percent of the target that that an aircraft would present. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, if I was trying to urge Putin into doing something incredibly stupid, it would be Russian linebacker three, Malcolm, br- bring it on, bring it on. Are, are you guys ready, it, Mr. Putin? Are you ready to have a, a world, worldwide headline that says Russia loses 20 aircraft in a single day? Because I think you be the result. I think what you're doing is trying to push me into writing an article called, which the Russians follow my stuff carefully based on their, their troll count, uh, an article called the Russian air force are cowards. <laughs> and we let Putin and his buddies and the guys in the army push for, you know, let's call it the operation light brigade, uh, and go out and get slaughtered. Bridge the, like you, I would encourage you create, the Russian Air Force to attack and Air Force. Malcolm, if you could urge them to do that, uh, go right ahead. Get to the keyboard. <laughs> let's, let, let's get them to do it. Yeah, apparently the Russians uh, are very vulnerable to Western propaganda and definitely to goading. But as you see in these, if you watch Julia Davis News, uh, the clips on Twitter of the Russian state TV shows of uh, Solovyov and um, Olga Skabeva, they're fighting amongst each other now. They're fighting amongst each other about what works, what doesn't work. And one general, ex-general, was out there saying it's been a disaster thus far. And Olga Skabeva's only answer to that was, well, let's see you go to the front line. Let's see you go to the front line. And he said, I go to the front line every week. Uh, they don't <laughs> seem to understand that, you know, just because you are eyewitnessing getting your ass kicked doesn't mean that it's going to help you anymore uh, by saying your ass kicked. So... I think that blindness of Russia will be will be great. I don't know. Maybe maybe they just want to upgrade the aircraft models in front of all of their Air Force officers clubs to, you know, the surviving MiG-29s and SU-34s to commemorate what might survive an onslaught like this. But someone has a very old school Soviet idea of what terrorizing people, you know, those, you know, thousand bomber raid images, and it's a fantasy. 
And I think you will lose easily 20% of the Russian Air Force. And you know the best part about that, why I'm all for this? Uh, I've seen a dogfight over the battlefield. I would be just chuffed to watch the Ukrainian Air Force scramble and just mass murder whatever aircraft in the Russian Air Force survive getting around or near air defense. No, it's it's another it's another important thing to realize. Look, the Russian Air Force, uh, despite its overwhelming superiority in numbers, technological superiority, uh, they're not they're not serving up the close air uh, support. And I say effectively, because normally the Russians will sortie about anywhere between four and ten times as many sorties as the Ukrainians, but they are not putting the hurt. Uh, they're not they're not really doing that much of a job. There was a Russian airstrike on uh, on the on the on a town just north of the M03 highway in the Battle of Bakhmut the other day did not does does not dislodge the Ukrainian uh, defenders. Uh, and then those same guys previously hit by a Russian airstrike, they beat off three attacks of Wagnerites. Uh, you know, Russia's not, Putin's paying for an air force. And uh, I think he's looking at the end of that conference table, Malcolm. And I think he's pointing to an air force general and saying, what have you done for me lately? Which is code for, uh, be careful on your balcony next week. (laughs) You know, I can't wait to see the uh, Ukrainian air force general uh, at the end of this onslaught discuss how many uh, aces the Ukrainian Air Force got in one day. The ghost of Kiev lives. Or is real. Will be real. Both. Whoever doubted that? <laughs> You're not, not me. Yeah, I would absolutely love the Russians throwing everything they got towards Ukrainian air defenses. Uh, sadly, I think this is just another paper tiger from the Russians. I don't think they're able to do those sorties. That's why we're not seeing them. And there are reports now that they're getting Su-35 parts from China. And the fact that they have to get support for someone else to maintain some of their most modern fighters... It's just a testament of the state of the Russian Air Force. So it's depressing that they don't even probably don't even have uh, the capability to fly to their own execution. But I would like to see that charge. Thanks. And you know, and you know what's interesting about that. So they are literally, literally buying Chinese knockoff parts for their aircraft. Good luck with that. I can't even get my my uh, Type C Chinese made internet cable to work. You know. Yeah, they they they're using the uh, the poorly produced knockoff of a poorly produced system. So that's that's a winner. All righty, gentle people. Um, Malcolm, Chuck, we have a lot of people who have requested. We've cycled a few up. Uh, 
for everyone who is not used to the uh, system here, if you raise your hand, which you can do by means of going to the bottom of your screen, there's a heart button and there you can actually, for example, also raise your hand. If you want to request a mic, please raise your hand. Otherwise, it will have to cycle you down again in order to make space. Right. So there you go. Now we just lost Ming. Mark, well, do you have a question for yeah. Chuck and... Yeah, let's let's if you, Malcolm, if you can bear with us for a few minutes to cycle through the yeah. request because we had a wave of people asking. Mark, please. Yeah. Hello, can you yeah, hear go. me? Yes. Loud and clear, Mark. Um, well, like I've kind of been watching this unfold for well, obviously, like everybody else, like you watch it unfold, and you're like, is this a proxy war, like? how many like you know like Lockheed Martin like BA what's it like all these massive big arms companies like they're making so much money out of this conflict actually and actually, I'm, like, part is I'm Mark, like Mark Mark it's not a proxy war proxy war would mean that the people fighting it would have no agency and that they would have been pushed to do so Lockheed Martin, by the way, has not been producing uh, all of that. Yeah, but then you've got stuff, to ask the question. Going there. You've got to ask the no, question. Then yeah, but how many Russian oligarchs no, no, are invested? I've got money invested in like Lockheed Martin. Like how many Russian have, oligarchs have exactly got money invested in all these big, like military Mark, companies? A, Mark, and then you're like, no, they, well, they look, you know, like it's like, part of that question. And, like, and they're, they're like, oh, we've sanctioned them, but they're still getting money from like. Lockheed Martin. You know what I mean? Like it's like no, it's Mark, all they, they're not. It's all Mark, Mark, they're not. That's right. Mark, no, let me. Mark. I'm so sorry. All right, let me let me talk first. Your your definition of a proxy war was absolutely spot on. This isn't a proxy war. You don't have a proxy war when you're sitting there having coffee in downtown Kiev, right? At uh, at Lviv Coffee, and suddenly the country is blitzed by two hundred thousand men. Um, the investments of Russian oligarchs are not going to earn them dividends if they're part of a defense portfolio in the West. What you're getting is a defense portfolio in the West that is being devastated. So um, they're not allowed to earn any income, any money. So, But on the other hand, I'm going to tell you something that I am not seeing in Ukraine. I am not seeing any contracts being given by the government of Ukraine that is making anybody rich. Everything that's going to Ukraine is a donation from the armed forces of these NATO and European countries to Ukraine so that Ukraine is not eliminated from the face of the earth. That is an investment. That is not a, there is no big money here. The only way that people are going to make money is replacing the stocks that American uh, defenses had already spent that money on. Many of these these ammunition and equipment that you're seeing would have been worn down, would have 10 years from now ended up in scrap heaps or being sold elsewhere. Now they're actually being used, they're being expended. And in a few years, when Ukraine is secure, maybe in the next year, then you might consider that who the next generation fighters that will come there, the integral air defense systems, then Ukraine's going to get money from U.S. and NATO to help them defend themselves. That's the only place people are going to make money. No one's making money in Ukraine right now. 
I've talked to many contractors and I said, this ain't Iraq. Give up your fantasies. There's not a dollar in Ukraine. Shoot, I'm giving them money. I've, I've given 100,000 bucks to Ukraine in equipment and cash. And they were paying me $630 a month. And I didn't get paid for the first five of my nine months. So this is a donor's war. That's exactly the point. And thank you for clarifying that, Malcolm. Uh, Ming, we have a question from Ming. Ming? Seems Ming can't unmute himself or doesn't find this. So if Ming can't go first, then we'll go to Case von Harten. Hello. Neither right. Ming nor Case von I don't know. They have their hands up, but uh, it seems they can't hear me. David, can you call out to them? Oh, oh uh, okay. You hear me now? Perfect. Uh, we can hear you now, yes. Yes. Well, I have a question. What is the end game of Putin? Because, because, because he's fighting a war of which he, he doesn't even know whether he's going to win or not. And, and you know... I, okay, so the, the the question is, what is the end game and for Putin? Okay, all right, Malcolm, Chuck, what do you what do you say? What what say you to Case Van Harten? Well, I think right at the top, Putin expected to within three days to two weeks control twenty five percent of the grain that makes flour in this world. That I really think that was pro that and coal and cobalt, other you know, industrial minis uh, industrial minerals and all of the seaports, the cities, uh, economic base and the glory of making a new Russia. But the end game of Putin is the game at its end, which is Putin will have a chain of command, which uh, change of command, which will likely end his life. Chuck. I, I what do you I, say? I, I, Putin wanted NATO off his front porch. Uh, starting in 2014, Putin uh, invaded Ukraine with his little green men. And I remember defense circles being all a Twitter with this, uh, and pardon the, with, with this, Putin has invented this new sort of hybrid warfare. It's, deniable uh, political changes, troops moving in unannounced to an area and running a new flag up and over the over the post office, etc. Let's, let's just a little bit. Putin wanted NATO off his front porch. What he did, because a year ago, NATO was almost irrelevant, right? It was people all over the political spectrum who were saying, well, what, what is NATO? What, what do we need it for, et cetera? He has revitalized NATO. He has turned the Baltic into a NATO lake. He has compelled Finland to give up 70 years of neutrality. Ditto Sweden. Uh, he, has, he has turned the entire world against him. And he started this war one year ago as a legit superpower. And right now he's getting his butt kicked 
by by an army of ad hoc citizen soldiers who are giving him the fight of his life. And what's the end game? Uh, I've talked about this. Putin is the one guy who can't lose this war because he started it. It was his idea. Like Hitler, like Stalin, like Paul Pot, he controls every facet of this war. And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work and keeps not working, I think it's not a, it's not a, Putin might have a balcony accident one night as well. All right. Okay, so does that answer your question? Yeah, well, more or less. But uh, Putin owns about uh, seven or eight time zones in the world. But he doesn't actually. He has a count. He is the leader of a country which occupies uh, land in those time zones. He doesn't own the time zones. I mean, there is a um, two countries such as India and uh, China, both of which have yeah, a well, significantly larger population. So I wouldn't quite qualify this as owning the time zones. I would agreement. But it still remains the biggest country in the world. Well, if you own a big Not desert, it? you only have a desert, right? Yeah, okay. Okay. But the resources are immense. Yes, and he can't he he and his uh, culture can't make heads and tails of using them properly in a humane way and trade properly with people. Yes, but, they, but funny, isn't it? And we don't we are fortunately not we are not dependent on his resources because for example, there is more bauxite and more mangan in other countries than uh, for example there. And there's more rare earth material in many other countries by now, including, by the way, Estonia and Sweden, for that matter, um, than there is in uh, Russia. So we really don't need them. I we could use them. I, be I, we don't need them. I agree. But still, he has his finger on it. Yeah, if, if only his fingers could turn this into gold. It seems that he can't really do that because otherwise, why is his economy, why is his culture, why is his army so shit? Yes, but, but you know, the resources of Russia are enormous. And they still and, don't know what and, to and, do. And, 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 and uh, look, Look at Europe. Uh, yeah, we have better resources. We try. We have better resources. We have better resources. We actually, funny enough, we have across Europe one resource which he lacks. We have people who live in freedom, 550 million of them. That he can never beat. And we have resources, by the way, also in the free areas of the Baltic Sea, the Northern Sea, the um, very north, the polar, the Arctic. We have all across the Mediterranean and the Black Sea resources which belong to free people. And they far outstrip everything and anything Russia can actually bring to the table because mm -hmm. they fail to have one resource, free people. 
and the rights to that. Okay. Well, I'd also add this, and that is Russia does have immense wealth and immense resources, but they are those that wealth and those resources are in the hands of Putin's handpicked cronies. That wealth does not go in, into the service of Russia's national interest. It goes into Swiss bank accounts and Cayman Islands island accounts, and and place it should be. And that corruption robs Russia of of uh, its natural resources, robs it of its political power. And the result is, after twenty years of Putin in power, he doesn't have a single competent general, not one. And his go to battlefield with better filled with melted rubber tires. It, it, it the, he is responsible for all the catastrophes that are going to befall him. All righty, we have additional questions. Let's uh, skip through them quickly, if okay? May, because I, I want to be mindful of Malcolm's and Chuck's time. Abdullah. Hey, hey, hey there, Axel. Ahlan, uh, Ahlan, Malcolm, and Chuck. Thank you for your time. Ahlan, yeah. Just wanted to get your take, yeah, your, your opinion on the reports that China might be, might be planning to go all in in providing weapons to the Russian fascists. What are the implications yeah, for Ukraine, for the U.S. and its allies? Thank you so much. I say I'm all for that. I say let's let's tear that Band-Aid off and make it eminently clear uh, where the Chinese stand. Because as far as I'm concerned, this year, let's look at it from the 100,000 foot or the Chinese space balloon level. Um, this is the first year in 50 years that the United States has created more manufacturing jobs in this country than it had before over two, over two consecutive years. We have just, just devastated our manufacturing base. And I am all for bringing all that back to this country by sanctioning China, isolating China, if they want to play this game. If they want to go all in for Russia, which I, I don't think that's true. I know that they love money now. Communists or not, they love money. Uh, and what does Russia give them? They can get all the benefits of sanctioned ignoring with Russia without providing Russia anything. They could force Russia to use all their cash reserves to buy, as Chuck said, right, cheap SU-37 parts and, uh, you know, Ethernet adapters that don't work and SU-37 parts that come apart. You have to order three for every one that works, right? Russia has nowhere to turn but China. Even India is now starting to give them the cold feet. Um, I'm confused as to South Africa, but hey, there's, you know, there's, there's nothing here that benefits China apart from providing equipment and weapons on the sly. Um, so for the most part, let them try it. Uh, we'll just start providing much more lethal killing weapon systems, uh, and giving Ukraine that capability to push to its border, uh, take back its land in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so that I don't, I don't understand where that, that benefits them at all, other than smashing parts of their economy, 
getting Chinese oligarchs to, you know, move to Singapore and Vancouver again. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing in it for China and there's definitely nothing in it for Putin. And Malcolm, you, you said exactly what I was going to say. I think the Chinese are smart enough to see what's going on in the, in the war right now in Ukraine and to make that cold blooded calculation, what's in it for us. And especially what's in it for us. If we pick sides and Russia loses, uh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't advance the, economic racket of the Chinese Communist Party. And I agree with you, Malcolm. I I don't, look, I've been wrong about a lot of things because I, I, some of the strategic mistakes in this conflict have just been amazing and fascinating, but I, I'm not sure that it that also means what could Russia, you know, give China that they want enough to expose themselves to the possibility of a of a Putin getting an L here. Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, whilst we're waiting, then I'll add to what you were saying as well about why China won't do this. China does uh, about. At one trillion dollars worth of trade between the EU and the United States, right? They are not going to risk that um, all being sanctioned, and they've got 1.6 billion people to feed, uh, and they they feed it by selling us stuff. They haven't solved that problem. That's going to take them a, a long time for them to solve it. So why would they ever do what what's been suggested? What can Russia do? Right. They, they can't even give them a couple of hundred billion at the moment. So China isn't going to risk one trillion dollars uh, for this because they know what would happen ex- immediately would be the sanctions would hit them. It just isn't going to happen. They're not that stupid. Concur. Absolutely. Well said. And I'm just trying to bring Betty up. She's put her hand up a couple of times or, or come up to speak, but hasn't put her hand up. Uh, so let's see if she can come up and uh, have, give, her, give us her question. Betty, are you up yet? Stick your hand up if you can hear us. No, dropped again. Oh, dear. Right. Has anyone else got any questions here? There must be a load. Actually, uh, I don't know whether you can see it, but we had uh, Kura and MJ and Nick all with their hands up. No, not at all. I must be poxed then. Uh, right? <laughs> You've heard me coughing, so that's, that is without a doubt 100% I am poxed. I, I can't see any any hands at all. Okay, no problem. So then let's go through this. I can see Betty with her hand up. I can see MJ, Kura and Nick. So let's start with Betty because she tried twice over before. Betty, please. Uh, Hey, guys. All right. This is going to be a strange question. But what about Iran and this wonderful report that they've got 84% uranium purity now? Is this going to be a problem? Because we know they're already helping Russia. Well, I, I, well go please ahead. go ahead. <laughs> We're both too polite. Please go ahead. I'll follow up. All right. I, I certainly think that Iran uh, enriching its uranium is, you know, the only thing that it can do is allow 
you know, stave off foreign countries from uh, continuing to strike it with impunity. You still got to get a working atomic bomb. You still got to get a working atomic bomb that, uh, you know, you, you never know. We may have a circumstance where Russia gets so desperate. If I were Vladimir Putin and things were so bad and I needed, you know, Zulfagar two and, uh, m you know, another 5,000 Shahids and a whole boatload of other weapon systems, Putin may be desperate enough to sell them the capability to bring that weapon to fruition, at least one of them. I mean, they're supposedly making deals with you with North Korea right now. Who knows how desperate they will get? My problem is um, when I way back in the old 1980s, uh, when uh, when, you know, uh, you, uh, Israel was striking Iraq, uh, Iraq, uh, destroying the nuclear power plant at um, that, you know, uh, that they had in Bakuba that, you know, once Iran gets towards viability, the entire dynamic of the Middle East can change. And I don't mean dropping viruses in there. Uh, you know, we may be looking at a completely different world if Israel decides that viability is a mortal threat to the survival of Israel. And you could have, oh, I don't know, the third atomic bomb detonated in history right over their development site. So, or fourth or fifth. Uh, I don't think this impacts Russia at all. Russia just... Russia is so desperate they're buying these Iranian uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that it, it will certainly have anything to do with whether Vladimir Putin survives, you know, breakfast the next morning. Yeah, and I will I will just add some. Uh, I, I don't know what I'll just tell you. I, I've written extensively on this. Uh, these are my opinions. They are informed. Uh, I've worked in counterproliferation. Uh, in my estimation, Iran is already a covertly armed nuclear power. They have had a covert weapons program for at least 25 years. They have several research reactors that have never produced one watt of electrical power. They are only used to enrich uh, plutonium. The technology for a fission bomb is 70 years old. Uh, have there been covertly armed nuclear powers before? Yes, there have. The Republic of South Africa had fission, had, they had uh, nuclear weapons that they could deliver by, by medium range uh, ballistic missiles. They also had free bomb. Okay. Knowing that, and it certainly explains all of the we're going to turn Israel into a lake of fire rhetoric, doesn't it? It gives you pause. Mm. But I would also say this, big boy rules, big boy rules. Congratulations, Ayatollah. Congratulations on your six or seven nuclear weapons, which I would also suggest have been developed in a joint weapons program with the North Koreans. Why do I mm -hmm. say that? Look around on the next May Day parade in North Korea. See the guy with the uniform, the funny hat, and no necktie? He is an Iranian general. Okay, mm -hmm. so just putting all this here, it's, it is sobering. 
It's sobering. But with Iran entering the nuclear club, as I think they do, and I might post a, a, an extensive uh, 20-page paper I wrote a number of years ago uh, regarding this. Look, Iran has entered the nuclear weapons club, and they understand the consequences of first use. They will be turned into radioactive glass. But mm. what does what does Putin have to offer them? He does technology that would that would affect them. But it's Putin who's on the ropes, reaching out to Iran for weapons. Wow. But there is another card in here that's more important to what we're talking about, and that is those those intermediate range, uh, short range ballistic missiles that Malcolm mentioned. Look, I think that they're going to make their debut on in the Iraq in the Iran and the Ukraine battle space pretty soon. And Ukraine needs patriots to take those things out. And that's more important to me right now than than any of the nuclear stuff, which I, I, I argue is a side issue for us right now. Terrifying? Yes. Side issue? Yes. All righty, let's go to Kura, then MJ and Nick. Kura. Well, um, since I first uh, wanted to put my hand up, uh, man, you, you guys have really covered a whole load of things. When I first put my hand up, uh, Malcolm was talking about um, uh, some military things in, in the Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, and he was talking particularly about procurement, about the need for uh, enough ammunition for, for artillery, wearing out of, um, uh, you know, cannons or barrels for, you know, be, be it stationary or in, in tanks. And uh, my, my thought at that time was, hmm, uh, we know that after a period of time, those bar barrels, you know, become warped or worn out. And, and, and about the, uh, my thought at that time was, well, how about replacement? Yes, we have these structures in place in the United States, but we also have the, the, the uh, Defense Procurement Act that could be uh, upcharged in a way uh, under the direction of our president to make this a priority. We've done this in the past for other national needs. And, and uh, so why not? Uh, we've done it before. The, the industries get paid a fair amount. They are they are uh, compensated properly, and yet this this is an international need. In between, you've started you've branched off into wow, an array of subjects. You know, especially in the last uh, half an hour about um, potential uh, you know nuclear threats and so on. But I, I will focus on the first. A thing that I want to say, and by the way, I'm just I'm just amazed. Uh, I would like to ask Malcolm to have 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 you had any discussions about you know using the Defense Procurement Act to facilitate the victory in the current uh, Ukraine in Ukraine? So that's my question. Thank you very much. Chuck, I'll let you handle the Defense Procurement Act. Um, you know, I, I certainly know for Len Lease, 
uh, they actually haven't acquired um, uh, any any of the largest ticket items there. I think that they're very happy with the resource pipeline that they have right now. They want to move to higher capacity uh, systems like um, not just F-16s. F-16s require, you know, uh, engines. F-16s require ground handling equipment. F-16s require, most importantly, the AMRAAM missile, which is now being fired on the ground in the, uh, you know, in uh, from uh, the uh, Norwegian supplied surface air missile system that they have. But they're going to e- need AIM-9Xs. No one wants to use the Russian air-to-air missile systems anymore. And I, I wouldn't be surprised when they announce the F-16s that they're going to announce a package to rearm Ukrainian Air Force aircraft with the, you know, AIM-9X or and the AMRAAM missile system, which will be a game changer, right? That will really change things. That means the Ukrainians can start shooting down jets at 67 to 80 nautical miles, right? Which means anything that comes into Ukrainian airspace, you could fly over Venezia, uh, which is south-southwest of Kyiv, uh, and create an air defense line down there of actual fighter craft, aircraft flying at altitude uh, and start looking down and shooting down uh, Russian aircraft at and over the battlefield in Donetsk which means it would be prohibitive to even fly over Ukrainian airspace anymore for any Russian aircraft. Um, why that hasn't been done is beyond me. But then again, we, we rearmed with the AGM-88 Harm missile, and it's quite possible that this is being done secretly, and it will just manifest itself on the day that the first ram shoots down a, you know, an Su-35, and we'll all be just like, what? Where did that come from? Uh, that's just the way this war has been done. And uh, thank you for throwing me under the procurement bus, Malcolm, <laughs> as a guy who did everything he could to stay out of the Pentagon during my <laughs> short and inglorious career. Uh, I'm not really qualified to speak on the procurement program, but there is this method of donation I like to call uh, the Norwegian way. Uh that uh, the the NASM air defense system that Malcolm was speaking about is the Norwegian slash national standard uh, missile system. And Norway uh, tends to do things like uh, announce a donation maybe six weeks after it has arrived and is in service on the battlefield. And Malcolm and I talked just a little bit about what the information strategy might be going forward in these Ramstein security meetings. And I got the feeling it's sort of short selling the results of the meeting, very limited uh, sort of acknowledgments. But in the days and sometimes hours following the meeting, uh, things are announced. The U.S. went into Ramstein 9 uh, saying no F-16s. The United States isn't going. Then within 36 hours, the the White House said, well, we're not going to stand in the way of NATO country. Wow. To me, that virtually, that said, look, the F-16s are absolutely coming. And as Malcolm also pointed out, there are a lot of Ukrainians training all over the world in these weapon systems. And Malcolm, did, didn't you say 650 Bradley crew members? Yeah. Uh, 
they're ready to go, dude. Oh, and how much? Yeah, graduating. How much yeah. Oops, did we lose you? There you go. Better not. Silence is frightening there. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to finish. All right, what's the next question? I think we answered that. Yeah, let's go to MJ. Uh, not to go back on the previous subject of... Uh, Thinking the Black Fleet, but uh, has anybody considered um, what would it take to sort of um, crew a submarine into the Black Sea into the Black Fleet? And yes, I know the Montrose Convention won't allow any new uh, Ukraine warships, but the question is more of what would it take to sort of bring a, a new submarine, and would a new submarine actually make any difference? Uh, first, you mean the Russians bringing a submarine in or somebody else? Um, yeah, submarine on the Ukraine side, let's put it that way. No, not worth the effort. And also, it, it, it can't come in. Um, and why? Why would you build, you know, a resource that the Russians have superior, not even superiority, they have dominance in, uh, when you can just asymmetrically remove their dominance you know i'm like i said i'm gonna write this article about uh now that we've this whole discussion has excited my my uh writing about you know adaptive uh technologies that ukraine could use to dominate the black sea and the first thing i would do is i would be hunting submarines i would make every russian submarine wish that they had never gotten underway um you know i've sucked a lot of amine and i've you know, I've got dolphins on my uniform and, uh, you know, I've been in some very funny places I should never have been in and that my opponents didn't know we were in. And, you know, um, I don't want uh, an unmanned uh, small surface craft that maybe is not even using a propeller, which is water jetting itself out you know, in, in using the drift cycles and, and, you know, to get into my, into my box undetected and is dropping, uh, you know, a, a passive sonar, uh, towed array that's being uplinked to a U.S. satellite, you know, so that it's kind of the old system. We used to have a SOSIS, right? The submerged underwater sonar system across the entire North Atlantic. Well, we stream, you know, our from our warships, passive uh, towed array. So why couldn't you just put that on a small fishing boat, which I won't say I've ever been on, but, uh, or, well, Chuck certainly has, uh, or merchant ship or, you know, small, small craft that can get out into near those boxes, look like a merchant, not on AIS, that could have small enough to evade Russian radar, and, you know, like these undermortars, uh, these unmanned small submersibles and just, you know, 
make, you know, put torpedoes in the water on that spot. Let them launch. Let them launch. Just be there, you know, and 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 then zoom in and put torpedoes in the water and let those torpedoes, active sonars and circles, search spirals, just do their thing. And if you hit the submarine and sink it, great. If you don't, they will never return to that water again. Uh, and if they do, they're going to have to bring a surface ship and that would be even more fun. So, uh, or even better yet. I mean, Chuck, you'll enjoy this idea now that you've excited this story in my head, a underwater man vehicle that is not, uh, torpedo armed, but itself has a ballast and it sinks right at the spot of the, uh, missile launches. And it is itself a depth charge of, you know, five, 600 pounds of RDX. And it, you know where to shoot, right? 36 to 50 feet underwater. You can't launch unless you're, you know, somewhere down there at launch depth. So, you know, man, I'm going to write this stuff down. Thanks for asking. And Malcolm, there are some things in the uh, inventory that you remember. One of them, folks, is a thing called a captor mine. Uh, Navy sea mine, uh, but to call it a sea mine, it doesn't sell its capabilities. What it is, is a torpedo that you drop in the water. It lays on the bottom until it wakes up and decides to track a, a contact to our Russian listening guests that down. If I, if I were to ship something 10 feet off, Chuck, you're breaking up. Oh, I'm. I'm sorry. I was getting these messages uh, uh, inviting me to join as a speaker. Uh, I was mentioning a a thing in the U.S. Naval Infantry inventory uh, called a captor mine. It, it's a sea mine, a smart sea mine. You drop in the water. Uh, it lays on the bottom, uh, dozing as it were, until it hears a a target. Then it turns itself on and turns itself into a torpedo and hunts down. So uh, there's a capability there that might be exploited for what Malcolm is calling asymmetrical naval warfare. Yeah. Look, okay. Uh, I know this is always, every time I come on this show, I have to tell you Malcolm's greatest secrets. Been on a ship, struck a sea mine. Okay. I was on USS Tripoli. Unhealthy. Okay, you do not want to be hitting big underwater sea mines out there. What if we're using these UUVs? What if the United States secretly gives Ukraine 100 captors? That's the sort of thing that would be under a Title 50 operation, right? Demilitarize, that's CIA. Uh, give it to the Ukrainians. Um, I, the, in another incident that I was in where the USS uh, um, Samuel B. Roberts was in the, the transiting to the southern Arabian, southern Persian Gulf, struck a sea mine. To this day, to this day, we do not know how the Iranians planted that mine line. And my ship, the USS Wainwright, was the first ship to respond. And when we got there, you know, nine hours after they struck that mine, we had to hold. We were a, a mile from a mine line and a ship that was next to us that was, you know, sinking, cracked hull and evacuate their crew. 
Ukrainians, I think, can develop that capability, that covert capability to get out to where the, the, the Russians are. And I'm sure they're doing it. I'm sure they're working it. I think they're waiting for the right parameters. And I tell you, Chuck, I, I love the captor idea that, you know, one day, you know, and captor had captors programmed to the actual specific screw, if I'm not mistaken, to the screws of that specific craft. So if you say kilo you class, got it. and it's kilo class submarine, Joe Blow, you know, Joe, Admiral Joseph Blowski, well, it will, it could detect kilo class submarines or in some instances you may put a screw count or a mine count you know or a number of craft count that, who, that comes out seventh ship blow up that's unhealthy on every level i hit a i hit a chained bottom moored mine right and when i went ashore with with eod mobile unit 16 at the end of desert storm i found about a hundred of those things all over the place but the ship next to us hit an Italian Manta bottom mine, which was one of those thinking mines, all right? And it heard the screw count, blew up. So I think that that, you know, um, now, and you know, like I said, we're, Chuck and I are going to be like furiously writing all these asymmetric warfare. <laughs> tonight. And I, I, I think we need to get those ideas into the good hands of the United States government. I'm sure they've already been thought about, um, you know, you know, but why use SDVs or why use, you know, commando craft when we've already seen them get all the way to Sevastopol Harbor with these drone craft? Right. Uh, I would make them greater capabilities, pontoons, use whatever system I would develop in San Diego or, 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 or Portland, wherever they wherever that river is. I would just start secretly buying for them six, seven different types of unmanned drones, maybe even semi-submersibles, you know, or, or wave cutters, things like that to, to make the Russians go, what's that? What's that? What's that? And stuff just starts blowing up and they just go, okay, well, the Black Sea doesn't belong to us anymore. Malcolm, I, I think that we should do a little put it, and I think it's also very interesting to our Russian naval command and just just the very real possibility that this could this could be happening in what Russia considers to be one of its lakes, uh, it's going to affect them. So I think we ought to get together and write this. I unfortunately am going to have to go. I've got some incoming fire issues here, and uh, I'm going to be off. But Malcolm, DM me, brother, and let's do some scribbling. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I've got to go too. We've been at this uh, a few hours now, but I want to thank everybody for listening to our drivel. Um, if you guys, again, I always say this, if you want to participate in the war, I am still Chief Procurement Officer of 3rd Battalion International Legion. Uh, you can donate to the 3rd Battalion, which is the Special Operations Battalion. I always say we're not Special Forces, we're Special Operations. Um, you can donate at tapstri.org. That's tapestry with an I.org. We are constantly in need of resources. Now it's fuel for our generators and more French rations uh, to be sent out to the battlefront. And if you want to read that article on uh, killing how Putin will die, which has right now been my most successful article on Substack, 
you can go to Malcolm Nance, that's M-A-L-C-O-L-M-N-A-N-C-E dot substack.com and you can read, subscribe and read that article for free. That one, we definitely need to have a whole couple of hours show about what ways Putin can be assassinated from inside. From your lips to God's ears, Malcolm. <laughs> yeah. God's got a strange sense of humor. All right, guys, thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you, Malcolm. As always, a pleasure. And Chuck, I don't know what happens to you, but these short stints where you only stay for three hours, that's pretty disappointing. <laughs> well, I was very glad to be on. Uh, it's always great to uh, listen to Malcolm. Actually, it kind of breaks my heart to hear your voices going because you've been on uh, so long. But uh, I, I, great. it got better. It got better by listening and talking and drinking tea. Bourbon, I would say, is better. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that before I go to sleep. <laughs> okay, but thank you. Well, I'll be I'll be back on uh, tomorrow and certainly uh, Tuesday, folks, for uh, uh, for bullet points. But uh, I'll be in tomorrow uh, and uh, talk to you soon. And thank you, Axel, so much, David. Thank you as well. Uh, and uh, talk to you soon. <laughs>